Hi, welcome to Starbird Vineyard Tours. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben. And we are our tour we are your tour guides to the world of science fiction criticism. Yeah. Uh and this uh time, I guess. This episode? This episode. We're uh looking at the seven beauties of science fiction, which is a uh substantial critical volume by Istvan Chichere Rone Jr., who's a pretty major science fiction critic of the present. Yes, yes. Um, and, uh, yeah, this is a pretty big one. Um, Chichere Rone is, like, uh, very well-known in the field. He was the editor of science fiction studies for, like, a long time, right? Yeah, I believe as of the time this was published in uh, 2008, I want to say. It was 2008, right? I'm pretty sure. Maybe 2010? Well, you can check. I am checking. Uh, this I should have checked this earlier, and that's on me. 2008. Um, he was the co-editor of Science Fiction Studies, which is a pretty big deal. Yeah, that's that's a, a, a journal. Um, yes. Science Fiction Studies I just studies realized is... that made it sound like he's the editor of Science Fiction Studies, the whole field. He's just the editor of the magazine that has the name of the whole field. I mean, to be fair... The journal is where the name comes from. Like, it was founded in, like, the early 70s. Uh, Darko Suvin was its, I think, first editor. It's a very big deal in the field. It is, like, the origin point for the field as a field, in a lot of ways. So this is this is a book uh, written after a long and illustrious career. And it's... It is ostensibly not a big theory book. Um, so it's not supposedly a book in which he lays out big ideas about what science fiction is or what it could become, but rather more of a, you know, description of a couple cool things he's noticed about science fiction. Now, he does state it a bit more ambitiously than that. It's that he's trying to state seven what he calls beauties of science fiction, which are things only science fiction can do as a, um, as a genre, as a formation. He talks about the idea of science fictionality as a mode of thinking, even beyond a literary genre or a particular body of work. And he thinks that that is, again, something that can produce these seven beauties, and that these seven beauties aren't, at the very least, are not produced by any other genre or mode of thinking. And by beauties, he's very explicit that he kind of means not really a single thing, but rather that they're tools for thought, which have a number of different sort of structures or shapes to them. Uh, as Mark said, it's not trying to be a big theory book that fits all of them together into a sort of clear structure, but rather a list of seven particular things that are each particular. Yeah, when in the introduction, um, he's trying to describe sort of what SF is and, and how that relates to these beauties. Uh, he says science fiction is a mode, uh, and that mode is a constellation of diverse intellectual and emotional interests and responses. So that's what a beauty is, a, an, a diverse intellectual slash emotional interest and or response. Yes. Uh, and... The concept of seven beauties itself comes from... It's a Sufi poem, right? Yeah, yeah, hold on. Let me find... Uh, but but yes, it, it comes from a, a mystical 12th century epic. Yes. Um, the, the Haft Pekar. By Azeri poet Nizami. Yes, so we're just reading right from the book, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the interesting thing about this uh, this this 12th century epic, of which the, the story is that a, a legendary king finds the portraits of seven beautiful princesses, and he falls in love with all of them, and goes out to the to all the lands of the earth to go find them. And each of them 
like teaches him a, a mystical lesson by telling him an allegorical story. And I actually owned this as a picture book as a child. Which is very cute. Yeah, so it's uh, the picture book is called The Seven Wise Princesses, and you should look it up because the art is gorgeous. Um, so just imagine that, but highly science fictional. Yes, imagine this, but the girls are all cyborgs. Uh, no, no, only one of them is a cyborg. Possibly <laughs> two. He's very clear on where cyborgs fit. So... One of the things that uh, I actually do want to start by singing this book's praises in a particular way, which is it is very readable. It's very extensive. Like there's a ton of ideas coming very quickly. And Chichir Ironi has been extremely effective in presenting his ideas and positions about these things in a legible and compressed form. There are, you know, seven substantial chapters, but this is still only about a 266, yeah, 266 page academic book, which is a lot, but not as much as you'd think, given the kind of scope this project has. So I think he really does have to, you know, get a round of applause for that from me. And also, each of the seven beauties is really interesting as he's presenting them. Uh, we'll have our criticisms and our, our thoughts on this, but I do think this is a really interesting book for doing that. And I think the structure of seven things that he just thinks are really cool about science fiction is very helpful that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also seven things that are, as you said, unique to science fiction, which yes. I'm always skeptical of claims of true uniqueness to science fiction, but I, I am genuinely convinced after reading these, this book that these aesthetic ideas or categories that he's talking about truly are special to science fiction. Yes, there's... There's a bit of a, there is a bit of a game going on here, a bit of a trick, which is, um, if once you state that these are things that are unique to science fictionality, which is being expressed as larger than the science fiction genre, then you can make the argument that anything that does one of these must have some science fictionality to it. Once you've reversed that definition a little, then obviously anything with these beauties will be at least a little science fictional, and therefore they are unique to science fiction. So I'm a little bit skeptical of the uniqueness clause, but not for all of them. For a couple of these, I'm fully convinced, yeah, this is a unique beauty of science fiction, is unique to science fiction. But uh, for at least one or two of them, I think there's some really interesting places where they spill over into other genre formations, other ways of thinking. Um, but that's, that is a really nitpicky point, and for the most part, these are pretty solidly slam dunks in that respect. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he's also very, very willing to point to things in the real world that are currently occurring and be like, this is science fictional. Yeah, I think that's a major element of sort of the, the way the book approaches this is also the idea that science fictionality as a way of thinking that originates within the genre and is structured by the genre has leaked out into our larger culture, which is not an uncommon claim to make, but I think this book does a very good job of backing up the ways that that seems to be happening in 2008. This is a very 2008 book in some crucial ways. Yeah, yeah. There's, um, so, um, a structure that reoccurs throughout this book is, uh, lists of things. Oh, yeah. No, there's um, one in the intro, I think. Yes, there's, there's uh, a number. Um, and, like, the, often these are lists of, like, real-world technological developments. Mm-hmm. Um, which is interesting because he ends up effectively implying that all of these extremely diverse concepts are in some way the same, or in some way 
fit the same category. Um, so the, the first of these, I think, in the introduction includes such elements as um, 9-11, or as he puts it, the postmodern hecatomb of the World Trade Center. You had to go straight to that one. Internet pornography, quote, raining down in microwaves, and the ability to alter one's physical gender. You did choose the one, the most eyebrow-raising elements in that list. I do just want to point yes, out. Yes, because I was trying to make my point. Yeah, yeah. It's a long list. I wasn't going to read the whole thing. That's fair. I'm, I'm just saying it's a long list with a bunch of elements. These are the most eyebrow-raising. Yes, and, like, it's not even that I actually think that he is strictly wrong to draw connections between diverse like uh events and concepts in the real world and say somehow these are science fictional or science fiction helps us understand these things um it's more that his conception of what is happening in this immediate moment and like what is new right now is I mean, it's, it's, it is 2008, and in that way it's kind of funny, but it's also not just 2008. It is, it is of a particular perspective of 2008, No, right? that's, that's true, and I do want to say that the, the context of that list in particular is, it is SF that is most assiduously imagined and explored such collisions and transitions. It is from SF's thesaurus of images that we draw many of our metaphors and models for understanding our technologized world, and... That's going to be a thing that repeats uh, pretty often in the book is the idea of SF as a, uh, you know, a source of images, a producer of modern myths and concepts that we can then use to understand and sometimes to misunderstand the physical realities of modern culture and modern society. Yeah, yeah. I just think that's a, a useful thing to put into this context, not to disagree with your point, but because that's a thing that this book's very interested in. Yes, yes. Um... Yeah, I think the the um, the thing that really sticks out to me about these lists is that he does often mention trans people, and he seems to believe that they've just come into existence, and also that they are, we are, I don't know why I'm using, anyway, that we are sort of fundamentally technological, um, which yeah. I, I think this is a way that he views lots of phenomena. Oh yeah, no, these, I think that part of what you're seeing is that, yeah, Chichere Ronai is conceiving of the world from the point of view of science fiction and therefore shot through with uh, technology and technologized transformations and is then relating this back to that. And I, I agree that that's a little odd yeah. in this context, but it is something that's getting applied to, like, everything? Yes, it 100% is. I just happened to notice the one that's oh, yeah. about me. Yeah, no, understandably. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. Shout... Shall we, shall we get into them? Uh, I do want, I have one brief thing, which is the section, you know, because we've basically been doing the introduction right now, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's two sections here that uh, I think are worth uh, pointing out, which is, there's one section just called On Method, in which he describes his method. It includes things like, this book is not intended to be a systematic exposition of a theory of SF, even less a history. Um... And sort of goes on to talk about how there's this rich theoretical discourse that he is mostly skimming the top of to find interesting elements of, rather than uh, attempting to construct a new model. And I think that's very uh, interesting to say up front, and we'll, we'll see how much he avoids that as we go further, because there is an interesting degree to which that's 
hard not to do, basically. If you're putting forward as much as he is, it's hard not to start implying theories of the whole. Uh, and then secondly, uh, the text and media section has uh, something I'm grumpy about, which is, you know, uh, I don't mean to say that this is a terrible thing, but it's a very common thing, which is he mentions having wanted to bring forward some of the lesser known science fictional works in this text, as he does have this massive space to bring up less well-known science fiction, but he ultimately ended up steering towards very well-known and very highly discussed science fiction. Your Philip K. Dicks, your Ursula K. Le Guin's, people who don't have a K initial. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to. Um, but the sort of body of science fiction that has been very intensely discussed ends up providing pretty much the entirety of the body of texts that are discussed in uh, Seven Beauties of Science Fiction. This is something that I was kind of disappointed by, but I understand. He, he makes his logic clear. This is a place where there has already been a lot of scholarship to draw on. It's something that other scholars and reader, casual readers, are more likely to recognize and thus requires less effort to explain. But as we go on, I'm, I'm sure it'll come up again, I would really like to see some of that effort to bring in new works because the science fictional canon can be very restricted. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that is a reasonable perspective um it's it's a little you know i think in addition to it being just a little frustrating on the perspective of like we like to see new ideas uh yeah. we like to see things that haven't been discussed to death there's also a political angle here yeah. which he which he openly acknowledges although from an odd perspective in that he says that he feels he has uh emphasized what he calls the Anglo-Saxon tradition over others. Mm -hmm. So he's talking about, like, I haven't talked as much about science fiction in languages other than English. Yes. Um, which is true, and I'm glad he acknowledges that as a as a potential issue. Yeah. Um, but it's odd to, to think of that as the only issue with focusing on canonical works when, you know, there are also issues of like race and gender yeah. and and like uh country in ways that aren't about language per se yeah um, I, I think there is you know he does say anglo-saxon rather than anglophone so he's, he's clearly at least a little bit saying white he's concerned about the europeanness of this not just the anglo anglophonicity yeah i mean obviously writing in english is a is a legacy of like, yeah but, but he specifically communism. says anglo-saxon not anglophone yeah that's that is very clearly i think him mention like uh making that rep that note but no it's it is the case that the canon that he's working with which is more the academic than fan canon does really heavily feature uh, a specific subset of authors uh, authors of color and authors from outside of the u.s and england which is sort of what we're talking about here so you do have some really great luminaries including octavia butler who do get discussed in uh in seven beauty so it's not entirely monochrome but it is the case that the canon is weighted in certain directions and i'm not disagreeing with that yeah yeah Anyways, um, all those caveats aside <laughs> yeah yeah but but no let's let's uh let's get into the seven beauties themselves Shall should we just list them before we that's probably a good idea we can just very very briefly list them yeah so we've got do you want to go back and forth yeah sure We've got fictive neology, um, which is which is pretty self-explanatory, like language that does not exist 
outside of SF. Mm-hmm. Or uses of language that don't exist yes. outside of SF. Yes. Uh, then we have fictive novums, which is to say novelties or things that have never existed before that are introduced within SF texts. And that has its own particular SF theory history that he's engaging with that we'll get into a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then future history, um, by which he, he really means, uh, like, imaginary history, focused on the future, but he also talks about, like, uh, alternate histories and things like that. Yeah. Um, I, I actually really appreciate how he um, how he says, and I think all of these things come from the idea of future history, so I'm just going to state it as future history. It really stakes out his position well. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and specifically, not just the idea of things happening in the future, but things happening in a way people recognize as historical progression. Yes. I, I quite like this chapter. Uh, for imaginary science, which is both the idea of depictions of science and the way we imagine science, but also the ways in which the science fiction imaginary, the science fiction way of thinking about imagining things, uh, has infected real-world science, like the fact that we think about science in part through the lens of science fiction, which I think is a really interesting point. Uh, so there's the science fictional sublime, um, which is drawing on the I, the existing idea of uh, the existing aesthetic concept of the sublime, which I think we'll have to define on its own yeah, terms. Yeah, no, no, we, we will have to just discuss. So what is the sublime? Yes. Um, and then uh, he you know, develops a number of kind of uh, subcategories of the sublime or developments um, of the sublime in the 20th and 21st century um, and ultimately uh, describes a particular version of it that he feels is science fictional. Yeah, it's like there's a certain flavor of the sublime that you can only get through the science fictional. Then he also has the uh, science fictional or technological grotesque, which is the same thing, but for kind of the sublime's I wouldn't say partner category, but sort of inverse or reflection of the grotesque, which, again, it's, we'll have to discuss with that. It, it's dialectical partner. That's probably the best way to put it. Yeah. But the um, the science fictional grotesque, which, again, is ways of getting at this sort of universal aesthetic category of the grotesque that are unique to science fiction and what it makes available. Um, yeah. And then finally, the technology ad. Um, which, much like the previous two, is kind of a, an existing aesthetic idea that he is um, describing in a specifically science fictional mode. Um, that is to say, it's sort of the technological version of the Robinsonade, um, which is a, I don't know, a story structure, a, yeah, a myth I think, structure. I think the best way to describe this chapter is there is a long-standing position that science fiction does not have unique story structures to itself. It takes other story structures and puts them within a science fictional context and thus transforms them, but that there are no stories that you can only tell within science fiction as narrative structures, which is a, it's a, it's a, it's a fine-grained point to make. Like, it's the Star Trek is a Western as well as being science fiction. It's not just science fiction. And... Or, or even, like... Uh, to to like elaborate it on on it a little bit more, mm-hmm. the contention is almost that science fiction is like a vessel that can be filled with the narrative pattern of literally any other genre, yeah, or or vice versa. That a narrative pattern can be filled with science fiction. There's different ways of conceiving of this, but this has been a a point of consideration, and he both puts forward a couple arguments for here are stories that can only be told within science fiction, as well as 
here is how science fiction, or a lot of science fiction, seems to descend from the adventure story of which the Robinsonade is like the Ur-type. And uh, this does also touch on a term that he didn't invent, but that I'm always fond of, uh, the Edisonade, which is the story where the main story comes from someone inventing machines. And it's, I, I had a number of like, I think there were Tom Swift was the name of the character. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had a few of those as a kid, and uh, I enjoyed them, and they really were just stories about a thing that got invented and does stuff. Um, and, you know, that is a relatively unique story structure to science fiction. That has been argued in the past, so it's an interesting place to be. And that is the seventh beauty. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Those are the beauties. Yeah, and then there is a, a postscript that I think we do have to talk about because it's wild. Yes. It's, it's what's it called? It's called, like, concluding unscientific postscript. Let's let's talk about the postscript when we get there. Let's yeah, not yeah, even... Yeah, no, I just wanted to say the, the description of it as unscientific is fascinating to me, so... Yes, implying the rest of the book is scientific. Yeah, yeah. Um, or, like, more scientific, which is... That's the weird part, because I don't think he's implying the rest of the book is scientific. It's all been science fictional. The last bit is... I guess, is it purely fictional? It's it's wild. Yeah, we'll have to talk about that. Yep. Shall we Shall we simply discuss them in order? I don't see any reason why not to. I, I mean, it's the way he gives them to us, and uh, there's a lot to chew on with each one. Yeah. So yeah, the first beauty is fictive neology, uh, which something I really like about the book is that each of these starts with a little uh, italicized uh, description of what this is. Um, I just think it's cute. Uh, Signa Novi, novel signs, unique signs. Yeah? Yeah. And it's the, um, it's a chapter about the language of SF. And what I think is really interesting, actually, more so than the chapter, which I think is a really uh, robust chapter covering a bunch of different ways words are used or invented within science fiction. In many ways, it's the most survey-like of the chapters. Yeah is that it's starting here. Like, we're not starting with the Novum, which has its whole SF Studies history. We're not starting with uh, imaginary science with, or future history, which you could probably argue are two solid grounds for, like, the concepts in science fiction. But we're starting with the language, with the idea, and it really is this idea of science fictionality starts at the level of the language you're reading and your relationship to it since it is mostly textual science fiction that we're talking about. Yeah. So, yeah. There's uh, subsections such as neology in the real world, which is talking about sort of a grounding thing of where do new words come from? And you've got uh, sections about slang and technology, technologized slang. And it really just starts with a discussion of I mean, effectively, ways that science and technology have affected language outside of science fiction. Yeah, um, there's a... This is making me think of um, a sentence that, at the same time, I find, like, kind of jaw-dropping, but that I also think is, like, in some senses, just true and useful to what you just pointed out. Um, he, yeah. Uh, in the section on the new neology, so that's what you were talking about, like... Um, neology of uh i guess um i guess he's he's talking about periods of neology and a like development of them over time yes and and so uh talking about neology 
During the Cold War, he says, This widespread application of techno-scientific vocabularies to social life reached a saturation point during the Cold War, which I think is a fascinating thing to say. Probably true, although I'd love to see some historical citations to that effect. Then the rest of the sentence... When the competing superpowers justified their moral superiority with their scientific and technological achievements. I mean, yeah, that's just the space race. I mean, yes, but again, like, the idea that it goes from... The the uh, the connection he's drawing here from technological development, moral justification, neologism, is mm-hmm. like, on the one hand, I'm willing to get on board with this, because I... Obviously, there were massive cultural shifts around technology as a result of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is an example of... He really wants to bring in broad historical context in order to talk about the development of science fiction over time. Mm -hmm. And it can get very broad. Um, Yeah, no, it really does. He's... When he's talking about the large-scale context of science fiction and the world around it, he does go very broad very often. Yeah, and and it's, uh, I I would just, uh, I think I would enjoy it if he either cited more, like, history, like, historians of science and technology, um, or if he maybe didn't go into, di- didn't make historical concepts. Yeah, and didn't make those sweeping claims quite so central to th- things he wants to say, because I don't, I don't know that he always needs to. Um, yeah. I think that's broadly fair. Um, I do think we should go over a few of the like specific claims of the neology chapter. Yes, yes. Just because I think they're really interesting is that... So part of the argument is that here are these normal, normalized in real world ways that neology occurs. That words arrive out of, say, technical uh, specialized language, or they come out of slang and people uh, finding new ways to apply words or things they need a new word for. Um, people even draw from literature. Uh, one thing he notes is the naming of planets is a kind of neology. And he does have a very, it's not just neologisms, which is to say newly invented words, but neology, new uses for words or new naming as well. So, uh, he points out something I find really funny, which is, uh, uh, the names of the so-called icy moons are, of, uh, Jupiter are drawn almost exclusively from the Tempest. I think it's Jupiter rather than Saturn. If I get this wrong, I'm in trouble. Uh, they now include Miranda, Ariel, and the recently discovered Caliban, Sycorax, Prospero, and Setebos. The one exception, Umbriel, is taken from Pope's Dunciad, making it our system's sole satirical moon. Which, <laughs> if we're talking about science fictional language, like, to reference last time with Delaney, and the way terminology, like, science fictional terminology creates weird effects, sole satirical moon is sending me places. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. Uh, it, 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 it is honestly a little, like... Satirical moon generates ideas that unfortunately are not there. I mean, no, but <laughs> but but not to. Thus, it is like science fictional. Like it, it, yeah, yeah. It, it creates a, it creates interesting uh, imaginations, even without any particular further uh, underpinnings. But um, you know, this is a a uh, her world blew up situation with Delaney, where there's a given world way of understanding, which is haha, that's kind of funny, versus a science fictional world, which is like. What's a satirical moon? Why is it making fun of me? Uh, but so there's interesting things also about uh, scientific um, terminology and the way that 
as scientific neologisms have increased in rate because more things are being discovered or more fine-grained things are being named, such as uh, different molecular structures and things like that, you get a more playful and science fiction-inflected uh, body of scientific neologisms because people have read science fiction and are now allowing it to influence how they name things. Um, this is uh, something that I think shows up a lot later in imaginary science, but is starting to show its head here. Um, and, and he connects it also specifically with cyberpunk. Yes. Um. Uh, and cyberpunk as this, like, incredible burst of neologisms. And he's not wrong. Like, a lot of the terms we have for talking about things on the internet and related to them come from... I mean, not just William Gibson, but Gibson and the cyberpunks. Uh, I think a great classic example that he cites is virtual reality, is a term that Gibson made up to sound as much like meaningless marketing speak as possible, <laughs> and has since become this incredibly important term, not just for talking about uh, virtual, like, digital spaces, but also for talking about ways one can relate to art in some cases. I read a really interesting paper arguing that the dance macabre like paintings from the Middle Ages and the Black Death can be understood as a kind of virtual reality structure because you stand in the middle of three walls with the painting on them and can like walk through the dance yourself. Anyways, so what I mean is that this idea of science fiction producing neologisms that then get new meanings and get reused and transformed is, I think, very transparently true. Whether it's a major driver of neologisms, he makes that argument. Um, so yeah... And that's just science fiction's effect on real-world language, which takes up a decent chunk of the chapter. It's not even the use of language in science fiction, which takes up another decent chunk of the chapter. Yeah, I think this might be one of the longer chapters. I, I, I didn't count. I'm on an ebook, which makes it a little annoying to count. But um... it's pretty solid, and it's got uh, it's got a lot of interesting examples. It's it's one of those things where uh, critical discussion of language is not necessarily easy, but it's very easy to give your examples in a book. You yes. don't have to try and find a way to communicate a larger body of text through short summary. You don't have to find a way to communicate images through text. You can just give them the word whole. I was totally wrong. The The chapters are all roughly the same length, oh, except for the technology ad, which is long. No, that one's quite long. Um, so the section that I actually think is really lovely, the, the bit I like the most in neology, is uh, the bit about imaginary neocemes and neologisms, which is about um, the construction of, or begins the discussion of the construction of science fictional terms. And to some extent, what it's talking about is the idea that... Um, I mean, to quote, the etymology of a science fictional neologism reflects imaginary laws of social evolution. The idea that science fiction authors, when they coin neologisms, have to kind of imagine how would this word come about, or it's not going to be a very good one. You can very easily have the classic, like, you know, the problem that some uh, bad fantasy novels have, where they have too many weird words that nobody, it doesn't seem like anybody would actually use these in conversation. Um because they don't feel like they evolved naturally. And so the challenge of creating naturalistic words uh, is an interesting one. And then, so this has a discussion of, so how have people imagined that? What are some, what are some ways authors have done that? And looking at the examples of neologisms given previously in the book, technical language entering everyday language, slang, things like that, and discussing examples of that in science fiction. Uh, which leads into another section I really like, which is 
neology without neologisms, which is my personal favorite thing science fiction does with neology. Uh, I think I can fairly say that, which is when a word changes its meaning within the context of science fiction, but is still a word one might use in the given world in real life. Yeah, um, and uh, as as unfortunately happens all the time, uh, Heinlein is like, you, he, he just quotes a Heinlein line and it's like, oh yeah, all right, there it is, happening yeah, on no, the page. I mean, I think we touched on this in, uh, did we touch on this in the Delaney episode? Yeah, we did, that like, Delaney, I think we touched on this, that Delaney really likes Heinlein or appreciates him a lot, and a lot of that has to do, Delaney argues, um, that like, Heinlein effectively invented or codified a lot of the toolbox of science fiction. Yeah, at a, at a, like, a language or structural level. Like, very rarely it's the specific things Heinlein invented within his uh, science fictional worlds and more techniques that he used that entered into uh, common usage. Uh, also, that actually reminds me of the one thing I think is weird about uh, neo- uh, fictive neology as a chapter. There's almost no Delaney. It's true, and that's very weird to me because Delaney has thought very intensely and very influentially, and he's referenced elsewhere in the book, about language and science fiction. He is a linguistically minded science fictional uh, thinker. And I think that part of what's going on is that Delaney approaches language from a very sort of, I mean, almost uh, deconstructive or uh, Derridian way of thinking about language. He's very interested in the relationship between text and meaning, the way you construct meaning in text. Um, and, well, there is a reference to him in the chapter. Yeah, no, I, I he does talk, I, I, I was just double-checking to see how much he talks about Delaney, and he doesn't, like, totally ignore Delaney. No, no. But, um, but, but no, I would have done more. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think you're wrong. Um, and I think it's part of it is that he's interested in effectively linguistic rather than uh, sort of deconstructive ways of thinking. It is often called the linguistic turn, the kind of thing Delaney is doing, but it's not thinking about, uh, you know, sort of what are the statistics of neologisms? How many new words come into being and where do they come from? It might touch on that, but the approach is much more like uh, Gary Westfall, who he references in this chapter, who did like a book of Here's all the new words invented in science fiction between these in these two decades, and what can we statistically learn about them? Which is a fascinating project that I would never want to do. Yeah, yeah, um, and and uh, he also quotes from Westfall like a number of different categories of neologisms, mm-hmm. which I, I'm always uh, I always appreciate like a framework with a bunch of categories. I always find it fun to put things in categories like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but at the same time, uh, I don't know how much uh, getting into the fine-grained details of different types of neology, neologisms or neology, it, it, it's kind of... Uh, yeah, the fact that they're like talking about morphemes and the construction of the words themselves, It's again, it's interesting. I think it was worth doing. It's not really what I'm interested in in this particular case. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So... Though there is an interesting thing that comes out of that, which is uh, the absence of alien verbs. When talking about, like, alien languages, xenoglossia, purely invented uh, words, which includes things like, well, to go back to Heinlein, grok in Stranger in a Strange Land, the entirety of the Klingon language in science fiction. So there's a discussion of alien languages, and one of the points made is that 
almost all alien words introduced in science fiction are nouns. They're terms for something that doesn't exist in our social world that the aliens do need a word to explain, and often figuring out what that word means and how it relates to their culture and how it relates to the plot at hand is a major part of the reason this alien word has been introduced rather than being translated as other words typically are. And I think that that's an interesting point and uh, an incisive one. Yeah, especially because, uh, again, as he points out, like, uh, neological verbs are very common in everyday speech. Um, yep, verbing, weirds language, to quote <laughs> Calvin and Hobbes. Yes, exactly. Um, I am sad that he talks about verbing but doesn't actually mention that Calvin and Hobbes trip, which I don't know if that's where verbing comes from. It seems unlikely, but it's so good. I don't think he uses the word verbing at all. So. He definitely uses verb as a verb at one point. Okay, well... I remembered it. <laughs> all right, I believe you. Um, anyhow, yeah, no, this this uh, verbs-noun thing is interesting to me. I, yeah. I believe that it's true. Um, I mean, he he cites a, a, a whole paper a study, yeah. that I think like went through it and, and did the math. Yep, Sproil calculates that 89% of the total inventory of his ample, sam- sorry, his sample of neologisms are nouns, most of which denote objects or official titles, with few words for imaginary emotional states or nuances. So this is, I think, one of the really nice things about this book, is that it brings together a ton of like, different uh, scholars across the field very rapidly being like, here's, like, the bullet point summation of this thing and connects it to other things. Even if you don't necessarily uh, agree with the connections or, or find them hard to follow, which occasionally happens, I do want to be clear that most of all, most of this book, I really enjoy the way it's putting things together, uh, you have access to this wide variety of this kind of thing, but I do think it also means that he's inclined towards quantitative analyses often enough. Or rather, he's inclined towards talking as though there are quantitative analyses when often no quantitative analysis has been done. I mean, <laughs> like, what, he, what, I don't know. That's a little harsh. Well, okay, in this case, someone actually went out and did it. Yeah, see, what I mean is that he likes, uh, he likes citations of things that can be used as sort of concrete evidence that you can then assemble so that it becomes a sort of survey or collection of things, which fits with the fact this book is a collection of seven things, and that's sort of the methodological thing going on. I would call it more, like, roughly empirical than quantitative. Mm, yeah, that's that's probably more correct. He's yes. not out here doing statistics. Yes, for the most part. There, again, there are occasional moments when someone's done statistics and he's very happy to bring them in. And And... Basically, this this was an ongoing frustration that I had with the book. Mm-hmm. I, this is kind of what I was getting at with that Cold War line, is that I think he very often um, makes statements that I would like to see, that that I feel like could be an entire essay. Yeah, um, yeah. Or in some cases, an entire book. Yes, no, this is, this book is many books. At least seven. <laughs> at least seven. That is true. That is so true. And again, I... I think that's really cool, but I also fully understand if someone wants more of a comprehensive engagement with every aspect of this particular thing, rather than this sort of whirlwind tour. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, something that I think is true about this book is that it's a great source of other books you could go read. Oh, yeah, because, as, a, as a just a, bi- treating it as a bibliography is fantastic. Yeah, first of all, be- well, first of all, because you could treat all his citations as a bibliography, go read those other things. You could also, I think, um, 
on Google Scholar, try to find people who've cited this book and see if you can find other people who've, like, lifted things like, lifted his beauties. Um, Sure. I mean, that would be more work, obviously. But I think the fact that he's produced these tools that are so clearly intended for other people to just, like, excerpt. Yes, yes. um, Means that... The, there is like a there's a web that branches out from this book in two directions. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Now, I do think we should move on from fictive yes. neology. Uh, I do want to briefly mention what are the uh, so each of these chapters generally this isn't true for all of them has theoretical discussion, context, uh, analysis, and then has a number of case studies. Not each of which gets a few quite dense pages discussing uh, the books. In this case, we have uh, case studies of Dune, The Left Hand of Darkness, and the Klingon language, uh, which I think is an interesting selection. Uh, I found the Klingon section in particular really interesting for talking about, like, why are people interested in space alien warrior Esperanto, right? And things like that. So that was an interesting thing. It was much shorter than I'd have liked it to be, but that is sort of the the flip side of having such a dense and multiple, uh, yeah, 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 multiple book, whatever. I, I'll figure that out in my brain later. Um, but no, the, uh, and I think it makes interesting comments on the linguistic stuff in each of them, though I think in the Dune one, it's mostly him complaining about it. Yeah, yeah, I think you could describe it as complaining. <laughs> like, the, the, comp- the core complaint that helps shape the Dune thing is that because Dune is drawing on Earth history directly and Earth languages directly, a lot of the terms for, say, Paul being Wad Deeb are just taken from existing real-world languages. And so uh, he's like, well, are we to imagine that there was a particular cultural amalgamation that produced these precise languages showing up here and there, or with no neologisms? Or are we to assume that these are simply representative of languages like our own? Or do they come into being in a totally different history from the way languages came into being in our world? It, it definitely feels a little bit like he's uh, kind of annoyed that while Dune has this very anthropological gaze and does have interesting things it's doing with language, its use of loanword words and calks from real-world languages into the sort of background haze of being a book written in English creates effects that Frank Herbert is probably not, uh, wasn't entirely corralling correctly or wasn't entirely thinking about, at least for someone reading it like Chichere Rone is reading it. Yeah. And then he's just very positive about Left Hand of Darkness and has some really interesting things to say there. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Okay, I do want to mention, just as a thing for... People who are listening to this who maybe don't read academic books very often to know, case studies like this will fully spoil the book, which you can make up your mind about how much that matters. The Left Hand of Darkness does have a late twist. Um, so be aware of that. I, I'm i not saying you shouldn't go read this Left Hand of Darkness section because it's fascinating. Um, I'm saying uh, you shouldn't assume that because he's directing this at a general audience, like, it's it's not like when people write a book review. Yeah. He, Mark here also means that he felt spoiled for Left Hand of Darkness by this book. I did. I did. I decided that the podcast was more important than that. Yes, and I really appreciate your heroic sacrifice. Shut up. No, I mean it. Okay, well, thank you for calling me heroic. Shall we move on? Yes, to the second beauty, Fictive Novums. This one I really want to tackle kind of holistically because yeah. there's 
it is in conversation. It, first of all, it's a, I think it's a shorter chapter than some of the others. It's a little shorter, yeah. Thank you. And it is specifically in conversation with Darko Suvin, uh, who is a major uh, science fiction critic, like arguably like the founding figure in modern science fiction criticism. You still have uh, like talks as late as I think 2016 called something like the Suvin event, getting beyond Darko Suvin and things like that, which is if you have a conference titled Getting Beyond X, you have not yet got beyond X. You know, this is this is very much a, a can't we just all get beyond Thunderdome kind of situation. What? I just like that joke. Yes, I know. You but will I, use my it whenever that, the word beyond comes up. That's not entirely true, but it's close. Anyways, uh, my personal indulgences aside, the, the point is, this is very much responding to Suvin, and as becomes, I think, pretty clear, uh... Chichere Ronai is not a Suvinian, or at least is not, uh, does not consider himself a Suvinian. He'll even reference, like, uh, you know, to Orthodox Suvinians, this would not make sense, and things like that occasionally throughout the novel. So he's responding to Suvin in the way the field in general keeps doing. I should say that I quite like Suvin, and will be responding to him in stuff I write, so I'm not immune to this even a little. Um, but the, uh, my Suvinian tendencies aside, the novum is a concept from Suvin, as it's being uh, interacted with here, which is the idea of the new thing which differentiates the world of the fiction from our world. And Suvin very much thinks that there's like one key novum in a good work of science fiction, or at least that has traditionally been the case. Uh, one of his classic examples is The Time Machine in H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, which obviously is the title of the book, the means by which the entire story can occur, and is itself an invention within the world of the story, and thus is novel even there, which makes it especially clearly a novum or new thing. And Suvin has a number of uh, theoretical things going on with the novum. One is that it has to be cognitively valid, which is to say Suvin believes it should fit science as it is known at the time, or at least close enough that it can make the story work within that frame, and that it uh, is hegemonic. It defines the narrative. If it's not narrative-defining, but sort of incidental, it's not the novum of the work. That's a very brief gloss on Suvin. We'll probably read Metamorphoses of Science Fiction on this podcast at some point, at which point we'll have a exhaustive discussion of the novum. Yes, I think that will happen. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention other works that then take the novum and do other things with it. What's going on in this chapter, in my opinion, is that Chichere Rone wants to respond to Suvin's novum, but doesn't just want to use it, because a lot of his ideas about science fiction aren't fully compatible, or at least easily compatible, with Suvin's vision of the novum. And so what he does is goes back to Ernst Bloch, who puts forward the concept of the novum with a capital N uh, before Suvin, and what Suvin's drawing on, who sees the novum as like a new moment in real history, a moment where something radically new arrives on the scene, a revolution or transformation of history that allows it to course correct towards utopia, basically. That's, a, again, massive simplification of Ernst Bloch's whole deal. But I feel like Chichere Rone's... Um, uh, synthesis of bringing more of Bloch's novum forward into the science fictional novum, which is a smaller and uh, more technical thing, results in him sort of just focusing on the idea that science fiction can depict Blochian novums in its 
fantastical future histories in its invented stories, and so focuses on the Novum as being novel to the world of the fiction. So in Star Trek, the Novum would be the new planet they've gone down to with the energy being they've never met before, rather than the Enterprise, which is the hegemonic Novum in a Suvinian sense. And I think this makes for a kind of muddled approach to the Novum. Yeah, like, um, I'm looking at, in the section Novum's Normative and Ludic, uh, where he, he basically explicitly puts Suvin's and Bloch's Novum side by side, and he's talking about uh, the time machine. For example, is the time machine of Wells's Time Traveler the tale's dominant Novum, or merely a conventional narrative device enabling the story to get to its true Novum, the evolution of the Illoy and Morlocks, I don't understand how you could not look at the time machine as the Novum. Like, the time machine is the thing that happens that changes everything. Yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the classic questions in discussing the idea of the Novum. Like, if you're a Suvinian and you want to find a Novum because it's useful for you for your discussion, you want to identify that Novum reasonably solidly. Uh, for example, So Young Chu, who's... Uh, you know, another scholar we're, I think, both quite fond of. Yeah. Um, uh, who is very interested in the Novum in a somewhat different way from Suvin, building on it. She does, you know, have to identify a Novum within a story in order to be able to talk about what that Novum means and does. So the time machine does offer an interesting question between the time machine as in the device that allows you to go places and the individual, you might say lesser Novums is often a way people talk about or secondary Novums of individual time periods that the time traveler visits uh, in order to understand things. And I think that part of what you can say about the time traveler is there's also the terminal beach. He goes past the Eloy and Morlocks to an even further entropic future. And so uh, the Eloy and Morlocks are merely one step or element in a larger story that include, that is hegemonically determined by the ability to travel back and forth in time which is what I would call the Novum. Not so much because it's a new invention. Uh, the time traveler certainly doesn't, like, go on to shape society by selling time machines. Uh, if that's not a novel thing in history in a Blochian sense, I really hope Blochian is a use usable way of saying that. Um, but rather that the time machine is a Novum in the sense that it is uh, hegemonic, it defines the narrative, it produces the science fictional opportunities for cognitive estrangement, as Suvin would put it, the kind of thinking that science fiction allows you to do in Suvin's approach. Yeah, and, you know, I'll say, I think that one thing that he gets at with this is, I think, really interesting, and I would like it to be... It's a way of thinking about the Novum that I like, and it frustrates me that it is complicated by this, like, is the Novum new to the history of the story, or is it new to us outside the story? Because mm -hmm. um, uh, later in the same section that I was talking about, he's he's describing what he understands as the underlying satisfaction of the Novum. And so he distinguishes mm -hmm. this from critical analysis, which is what uh, Suvin values, or utopian longing, what Bloch values, uh, but a uh, a sense of pleasure that he describes as more ludic than cognitive. Ludic is like a key word for this book. Yeah. Um, more ecstatic than disciplinary. So this sort of uh, joy in estrangement that he's talking about, um, I think is really interesting. I think it's like 
an interesting wrinkle on Suvin's Novum. Um, I also think it strongly implies the Novum being new to the reader's world. Like, because, like, if, if there is some sort of, uh, these, like, things that are distant that are being connected or, like, ideas that are new to us, like, yeah, I don't know, um, that, no, I mean, I think you're right that the ludic novum does not have to be new to the world of the fiction. It can be new to the world of the reader only. You can have a work that is ludic, that is, like, joyful and playful, that doesn't have a transformation of the world within the world it's describing, but just coming to understand better that how that world differs from our own. But again, I'm coming from a very Suvinian perspective, which is that I do think that the cognitive estrangement, the way of thinking about the world in science fiction is important and has a real critical facility that, to some extent, I think Chichere Rone is trying to argue for uh, being not just um, optional in science fiction, but rare or not even really the point. Chichere Rone does not think, as Suvin does, that the point of the Novum is to cause you to look at the world and think, this could be different from our own, from how it is. Things could change. It's a very critical facility when Suvin says cognitive. It's one that leads to political beliefs, because Suvin is deeply political about science fiction. And I do think that part of this has to do with, you know, uh, Chichere Ronai is trying to be more descriptive than Suvin is. Suvin is perfectly willing to point at lots of things that you and I would probably say, oh yeah, that's science fiction. And Subin's perfectly willing to say, well, it's, if it is science fiction, it's bad. Or like, it's not science fiction because it doesn't produce this cognitive effect that I want. Yeah, um, I, that is true. And that's, generally speaking, that is the big criticism leveled at Subin. Like, that's yes. the, that is the big thing is Subin says Star Wars isn't good science fiction. And, like, I don't just mean Star Wars, but it's a really useful one. It's the, like, romantic, exciting, adventurous, but not at all critical or, like, uh, materialist cognitive uh, way of doing science fiction. And to some extent, there's a real deprecation in the Academy of uh, approaching a genre with that kind of, like, I'm going to disqualify things. I'm going to find the real elements of the genre, the good ones, and get rid of the rest. That's been... That is very much not a thing people like to be doing these days, and it's something Suvin is unapologetic in doing. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting. Uh, the thing is, saying these things are bad, they don't belong in the category of stuff that I think is interesting to talk about, that's kind of deprecated. But on the other hand, saying these things are good, they belong in the category that yes, I like to talk yes. about. That is very positive. And that's clearly what uh, Chichere Ronai is doing with these beauties, right? Is like yes. he's saying, here's a bunch of good things. Here's a bunch of science fictions that do the good things. And it frustrates me because, of course, there are things that don't do the things you like. <laughs> like, it's not actually a different move intellectually to me to valorize mm. things versus to denigrate denigrate them um it just looks nicer yeah I I, mean, I, I I don't think you're strictly wrong like i do think that there's a certain way in which it's about tone this yes. is a very positive tone whereas like metamorphoses of science fiction does have some real flight that's suvin's big uh book uh putting forward his theory. Um, it does have some flights of joy and enjoyment, but it is also 
kind of unrelentingly critical and sharp-edged. It is saying, I am going to carve out the valuable heart of science fiction. It's going to be beautiful and important, but there's going to be a lot of waste matter going by the wayside. And, you know, maybe that's a little bit of a grim way of describing Suvin, but he is kind of a grim person. Like, not literally, he seems to be perfectly charming as an individual, but his A grim practice, thinker. Yes, his theory is a little bit hard-edged that way, and is much more concerned with the ways in which things can fail to live up to this high ideal than this book is, where I don't think we get many at all examples. Like, there is that complaint about Dune, but it's really couched in a, well, here are some ways you could recuperatively read the fact that Frank Herbert is doing things with language that I think are kind of stupid. Okay, yeah. that's, that's again being a little bit mean to Chichere Rona. I don't think that's the intended tone. That is a little bit how it came across to me. Yeah. Um... But the, um, the the chapter does have other things besides this sort of interaction with Suvin. It's just that that interaction with Suvin is so visible to us, I think. Uh, there's discuss discussion of different uh, structures of novum. There's the single novum work. Solaris is held up as exemplary. And Solaris is, I think, one of the few works that gets talked about in two different chapters in this book. It is... I think maybe the most written about literary science fiction in history um, on a scholarly level. Solaris is a big deal, so I'm not surprised that it gets that uh, special pride of place. Um, and there's also discussion of Philip K. Dick, who's maybe the second most written about, uh, as the exemplar of the many Novum's work. And this actually has a little thing that I think is really interesting. Do you mind if I go into it? Yeah, sure. Although, uh, let's... Let's make sure to speed through <laughs> as much as we chapter. can. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but all right, do your one thing. So the um, uh, what it's talking about with Dick is the idea that uh, if a single novum sort of creates the frame for an entire work, like the time machine frames the entirety of the time machine and provides the system of logic by which you can understand it, uh, having multiple novums that each genuinely determine part of the narrative and don't really sh it's not sharing space or acting under a single novum, creates a disjointed world, a world of multiple different modes of thinking and, and uh, experiencing that can be disorienting or intense. And this is the effect that Philip K. Dick is often specifically identified as having, that he is the sort of crucial author of the multiple novums story, and he's treated as such here. And so I just wanted to mention that because it's a common idea. Yeah. In science fiction studies. <sighs> and that brings us to the third beauty. Yeah, I think we can move on to future history. Yep, future history. It's a history of the future. Yeah. And others. Yeah, and, and uh, this specifically has to do with not just the idea of literally things that happen in the future, mm -hmm. but like uh, the ideas that we have about how history works over time and um, develops... Like our 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 rational understanding of history mm -hmm. in some way applied to the future. Yes, and from that it can be applied to alternate pasts or other histories. There's sort of an idea that you start with talking about the future, but you quickly. Um, I think the way he puts it is uh, alternate futures of the past as a way of talking about alternate presents and things like that. The idea that the future. Of, of early science fiction becomes the model for the flights of fantasy of the past and present in later science fiction as it develops as a genre. Um, there's also a lot of discussion of different models 
of uh, history and of different sorts of ways of doing history. Uh, there's techno-revolutionary, which is to say a new technology revolutionizes the future. There's evolutionary, where things develop in a kind of Darwinian way with technologies, biology, and things like that changing shapes slowly over periods of time into the future. Um, there's also uh, some very interesting discussion of um, uh, time machines and the idea that the time machine is itself, again, uh, history becoming a future to the present, like the history becomes permeable, that things could be made different in the past. I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff in this chapter. I think it's probably my favorite of the book. Uh, there is a really wild statement that I want to point to briefly, but I think that can happen at the end of talking about this chapter. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, and I think uh, a major part of this uh, this future futurology, um, this discussion of different futures and modes of futures, also the idea of uh, dispersive futures and uh, the idea that futures split and become multiple, either in the idea of multiple alternate futures, multiple timelines, but also, and I think Chichiro Rone makes this very explicit, this is itself describing science fiction as a whole. Science fiction as a body of work presents an incredible number of different futures, and so, as the argument goes, Historical contingency and historical possibility are forefronted simply by the act of reading multiple science fiction works. You cannot be a determinist and read lots of different science fiction without encountering an opposition to that determinism. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this is something, um, I'm not sure, I don't think he explicitly draws the connection here. Um, but this is very, like, resonant with an idea that comes up in different places in this book, um, the megatext, mm -hmm. um, which is this idea that, you know, science fiction as a genre develops, uh, like, a set of ideas, not just um, the kind of aesthetic structures of the beauties that he's talking about, but even more quotidian ideas, like, for example, a time machine. Yeah, or an Ansible, which is a faster-than-life communi light communication device. Yes, um, and so, like, this idea is, you know, invented by some science fiction author, and then taken up by other science fiction authors, and so, if you're a science fiction reader, you start to know what these things are and have expectations for them. Um, and so I think in the same way, by... Uh, in, in the same way, like, the megatext of science fiction contains many possible futures. Yes. Um, yeah, no, and I think that the megatext is a really useful term that shows up he, uh, here and there in the book, which is just a, it's a popular term, especially because if you don't want to have to define science fiction in a totally rigid, like, theoretical way, you can also always say, science fiction is a megatext. The genre is a bundle. We don't have a specific essence. It's all the things we call science fiction and the relationships within that. And that can be a very, let's say, convenient way of talking about science fiction without having to have a knife fight over whether cognitive estrangement is in fact the core of the genre while Suvin laughs in the background. Um, uh, I just imagine Suvin as M. Bison, which is really silly. God. It's really silly. Yes, it is. Um... So, uh... You know, there's uh, there's a line here, actually, which I have now lost, so give me two seconds to find it, which I think is a really useful one for this idea of multiple futures. Uh, yes. Uh, like flying islands, alternative histories are figures of our inability to imagine the future as something inevitable, fated. And that's 
I think, really interesting, because it's not just saying science fiction fans get this option to believe in multiple futures, but an inability to believe in a single future, that the future cannot be set for a science fiction reader or writer or person in this discourse, and that this is maybe not just for science fiction readers, but for everyone, that at present we cannot imagine a single concrete future rather than a haze of possible futures. And I think that's a really interesting claim. I don't know how you'd even begin to prove or disprove it. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, this, uh, this the, the future history chapter is definitely one of the places where he's very interested in talking about um, changes in kind of uh, technology and, like, uh, the technological understanding of the world over yes. time. Yeah. Um, there's a, 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 there, there are some, there are some claims about that in the parts where he lays out these different models of history, the techno-revolutionary model, the evolutionary model. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but I do think, even though I don't think his discussion of like different approaches to history is exhaustive, um, I still think it's useful. Yes. Uh, I do think that there's a lot of, like, uh, I mean, okay, part of the concept of these sections is that these model, these scientific models become models people use more generally for everything, and that science fiction is a way in which that occurs. So they're often a little bit, you know, you might say overstated. The idea that, uh, you know, Darwinian evolution was the direct cause for, I don't know, something like Dune or things like that uh, in an intellectual history kind of way. I think that it's an interesting thing to put forward. He does make an argument for it, so I think it's really interesting. I'm just not sure I'm sold on all of them, which is, again, normal for this kind of uh, scholarship. Yeah, I think the the part of this that maybe gets the most, like, wiggly for me is when he is talking about, um, like... Uh, and, and I think he's, he's not just talking about this himself, but he's uh, quoting another writer. Um, but that... Uh, essentially that... Being able to imagine a speculative future is something that had to had had to be made available via like historical shocks, which mm. are which he talks about in almost psychological terms. Um, so like he talks about he's saying writers and publics in order to conceive of the future, in order to like represent the conceive of the future in such a way that scientific science fictional representations of it makes sense um i mean he's essentially saying like they had to experience the 20th century um yeah i mean but, i'm i'm not actually unconvinced though i'd say the 19th century was probably just as crucial well the industrial revolution so it's less that i disagree with him that like the the technological and historical developments that took place over the 19th and 20th centuries are like necessary for the appearance of science fiction and more that i'm not sure i believe that Part of that development was that people had to feel it was possible to attain a critical distance from events. Mm-hmm. He's he's very like modernist in that way. In the not modernist, the, he's focused on the modern. Yeah. Um, yeah. So postmodernist. Yes, and and like he this this idea that that people were not self critical of their history or their technology. Mm, yeah, it's 
And I think part of the, the odd thing there for me is that a lot of science fiction is not self-critical of technology. Like, Gernsback's own science fiction is very straightforwardly, we're going to have cool things in the future that are going to be like these, but better. Yes. And, you know, he was himself an inventor. Gernsback's uh, science fiction fits with his worldview very clearly. A uh, couple of other things in this chapter before we move on. Just, sadly, we do need to move on. Um, there's, a f there's one thing which I think is really fascinating, which is... Uh, the idea of whether the structure of science fiction itself should reflect the weirdness of its future. Um, because truly new conditions differ radically from consensus reality, they're usually embedded in familiar narrative frames in order to be intelligible. Some artistically ambitious works, and there's a list of them, to name a few well-known examples, stretch the frames to make storytelling technique embody the Novum's disruptions. And the thing is... I. I want to read the book that's just about this list, like this one paragraph describing how each of these works embodies the Novum's disruptions in its storytelling techniques. This list, for full uh, disclosure, includes uh, Delaney's Dahlgren, which is a fascinating book, Russ's The Female Man, and Wolf's The Book of the New Sun, which we're obsessed with here. So... These are books I would really like to see Chichere Ronai take on, and this is the point at which I just feel really sad about the sort of standard canonicity of a lot of the examples, because this little list on its own promises such riches. Yeah, I I, I, I do think Chichere Ronai is uh, perfectly willing to say that most science fiction is not artistically ambitious. Yes. Um, which is... Which is interesting, given the valorization going on. Yeah, I um, mean, I think it is fair to say that Chichere Ronai does not disagree with, say, Suvin, that a lot of science fiction is not artistically ambitious, but he thinks that the qualities of science fiction that are valuable are actually independent of artistic ambition. Yes. Not that artistically ambitious ones aren't good. Like, he clearly has a special soft spot for good science fiction, to put it bluntly. But other science fiction, mediocre science fiction, mid-science fiction, can also have these effects of, you know, creating what he calls free history, this, this uh, break from determinism, this sense of openness and play that are the point of science fiction's future histories as presented in this chapter. That, uh, that openness does not actually require a wolf or a Delaney or, a, uh, or anyone else uh, of that sort of caliber. Yeah, no, I think you're right, and I think it's 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 good not to uh, pretend that the genre is only its most notable works. Yeah, um, I do think ultimately, like, I think that making something formal about the book reflect what it is trying to present to you is like. I don't know. I think that's kind of basic craft. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, actually, there's a line from Gene Wolfe that's relevant here, which is uh, that cliches are not bad, it's how you use them. I'm, I'm paraphrasing mightily. But, you know, Wolfe himself, you know, and a number of these authors, Delaney certainly wouldn't disagree either, or Le Guin, that you can take standard cliches or elements and rework them into a way that remains accessible to the reader, but also does something new. I just think that in fact, I think most of the canonical examples being discussed, like Solaris or uh, Left Hand of Darkness, do this. It's just that they became popular enough and well-tread enough and were just accessible enough 
that they were able to enter into this. And even when I say that, it's not as though Left Hand of Darkness is like, you know, constantly flying, was constantly flying off the shelves the whole time. It was always kind of avant-garde. It just became a classic. Yeah. And so I think there's a complicated relationship here, and it's part of why I'm, you know, why I'm a stickler for this idea that I think that it would be nice if SF theory writing, SF studies writing, also presented works that aren't super canonical as well as the canonical ones or aren't super well written about even if they're relatively canonical like i can't say the book of the new sun isn't well regarded it just doesn't appear in these sorts of discussions that often but i think increasing the library of works that are drawn on in this sort of criticism is really valuable for making those more generally available for future criticism yeah i think so uh there's a also another term in this chapter that i thought was useful to define or pull out because it was a but I can't find it, so if I can't find it, it's not something I can help with. I'd, I'd like to mention one small detail, which is a bit unfair of me to jump on him for, but I want to. Okay. Um, at the very beginning of this chapter, he tries to talk about tense and, mm. like, why... Uh, why is science fiction, which talks oh, about yeah. the future, not set in the future tense? Oh, yeah, no, that's actually, I found that a very interesting bit. So it's not that I don't think it's interesting. I think it is totally true that, like, it is notable that this doesn't happen. There's something to explain. And he takes a paragraph of, um, you down, know, of... Down Below Station? Yeah, he takes a paragraph of uh, the C.J. Cherry novel Down Below Station and basically takes the takes a section a section of it which is a future history although it is a as he calls it the prehistory of the novel itself but mm-hmm. um he changes all the verbs to future verbs and it does change the paragraph it makes it feel really weird yeah but he says sustained for hundreds of pages readers will surely lose patience with this obsessive compulsive precog who knows everything down to find details no they will not because they read homestuck entirely in the second person <laughs> Yeah, I, no, I the, guarantee a novel that was written in the future tense, people would read it all the way through. Would it be good? Would it become super famous? I don't know. But his his belief that this would ruin a story, I don't think can possibly be true. Yeah, no, there are also more recent like science fiction and fantasy novels that have been written in the second person or in other tense constructions. I think it is interesting that the future tense has not actually been used in that way yet when past present second person first person various different approaches in this way grammatical constructions have been used i can't think of a single future tense only novel or anything like that and so i don't think it's so much about people losing patience but i do think there's a really interesting thing going on there that we can't really go into you know that we can't capture in this brief discussion but i think he's pointed to something cool yeah no i I bet there's something out there written in the future tense. If you know what it is, please feel free to at me on Twitter. Yeah, no, I'm I'm excited to learn as well. I, found, not... the, I found the term, by the way. Oh, go ahead. Uh, the term is second nature, which is a theory mm. term that's quite useful, which is the idea that, um, and it's a term from, I believe, Marx, which is the idea that uh, nature, nature, like just before humans start doing things when we're still just animals, is first nature. And then... Over time, we transform the conditions we live within through technology, social organization, the processes of history into second nature, which is the world in which we live now. And, you know, when we talk about human nature in the present, we're talking about 
our, you know, selves in second nature. This is also why uh, some Marxists will say there is no such thing as human nature or like a human essence because it is being constructed by the society we live in and our reactions to that. And uh, part of the argument in this book that appears, I think, often is the idea that science fiction is articulating a relationship to second nature at all times because it's about the technological world. It's about the effects we have on the world so that instead of uh, being in conversation with first nature, it's always in conversation with second nature. I We're always saying this about things in this book, but I'd love to see the book that is taking this like second nature theoretical term, which is... Um, he says it's Marx following Hegel. So I think that yes. means Hegel coined the term probably, and then Marx yeah, used it. Probably. I'd love to see the like Marxist Hegelian book about second nature and science fiction. Yeah. I mean, this is a real strength of the book. Like we keep saying we want to see these books that are in this book. And I really don't want that to be read as fundamentally a criticism. No. It's a real strength of Seven Beauties. It really is. Especially, I think it's a real strength that a book which is... Definitely not Marxist. Not from a Marxist critical perspective. At least not primarily. It incorporates yes. that. But yeah. Yes, he includes, he talks about Marx. He, he, he always, I would say, includes Marxist perspectives and kind of explicitly marks them off from himself. The same way he does with Suvinian perspectives. Yes, absolutely. I would Which say... Are Suvin is a Marxist. Suvin but... is a Marxist, but the Suvinian perspective and the Marxist perspective in this particular discussion have diverged, not in like a contrasting way they're just talking about very different things yes no that's absolutely true but but ultimately um i guess what i'm saying is if i read your book and i think boy i'd love people coming from a different critical angle to talk about this that doesn't mean oh i think you came at this from the wrong angle <laughs> yeah yeah no no of course of course i do think it's interesting i think we want to sort of put a pin in this which is for the end of the book discussion what would you say that chichere rone's position he frames himself as in this book is like what school of thought is he being associated with in the way that Carl Friedman's a Suvinian and this is Marxist and this is etc etc yeah yeah I think that's a good question um and one to return to after we finish since we're getting to more general points should we move on to the next beauty yes let's go to beauty the fourth imaginary science yeah this one's wild like, I, I keep yes. saying that because this book is just doing things constantly. Again, I really respect it. But this one in particular is very wild um, because it is basically, uh, I mean, first of all, it starts with the incredible line, SF's free science. You know, we talked about free history, the idea that SF allows for, science fiction allows for this free play of histories, this impossibility of determinism. And now we're getting, this is free science as opposed to free history. Yes. Um, and, okay, I have to be honest. That means that this chapter is dense with statements about real science and history yeah, of science. Yeah. We can take it as read that there's constantly something on the page to go, what? Yeah. Um, there are a lot of things where I highlighted something with, like, does it? What would the history of science say about this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do do the historians of science agree with your description of the history of science here? Maybe some do, maybe some don't, but again, would like the whole book. Yes. But I think the core thing here, and this is such a dense chapter that I really don't even know where to start with discussing individual sections of it, the core element of it really is ludic. 
in the sense that it's proposing that what science fiction does allows us to play with science and with effectively the epistemology that defines our modern society. He's very clear that like there is a scientific knowledge structure that is very deeply fundamental to the way modern society is organized. And in fact, he often makes the sort of critical analysis that there is now a distinction in society between scientific knowledge havers, or he sometimes even calls them the scientific high priesthood. He's very prone to that particular way of talking, of scientists who produce the knowledge, and then there's everybody else who, to some limited degree, absorb it to explain their place in the universe. And the thing is, I definitely don't think he's wrong about the fundamental epistemology of the present being scientific, that the way we talk about knowledge is by reference to the structures of science. It doesn't mean that we necessarily all agree on what science is, or don't believe that there are other bodies of knowledge that we care about more, or anything like that, but the generally socially accepted episteme is techno-scientific. And that's kind of the thing this whole chapter is reacting to, with science fiction as the effectively being presented as sort of inherently, again, not when it's good, not when it's bad, but at all times, inherently responding to that techno-scientific episteme in a critical way that creates freedom. I'd like to briefly pause to define episteme. Oh, yes. Uh, so, so epistemology is like the study of how we know what we know. Yeah. And an episteme is a system in which we know things. Yes. So the techno-scientific episteme is knowledge is true if it comes from that sort of techno-scientific method of producing knowledge, and that we generally trust that to create knowledge, and also we interpret other knowledge through that lens, which I'm sure, if you think about it for a few seconds, even if you haven't heard these terms before, you'll see how this happens in day-to-day -day life. When we look at things and ask, well, is that scientifically accurate? Or, you know, d is there data to back that up? Every time that I read this and I'm like, uh, what would, like, even when I ask what would historians think? Like, historians are not strictly speaking scientists, but this thing where I'm seeking for some sort of academically supported empirical information. Yes. That is part of the scientific episteme. Or yes. the techno-scientific episteme. Yes. And... This is this is where for uh, one thing gets brought up that I think is always fun to bring up, which is the oxymoron of science fiction. The name itself is oxymoronic. Science fiction. Science fiction. <laughs> you know, it's always cute when someone brings that up. But in here we have what I think is actually the closest thing to a full-scale theoretical description of science fiction at all levels, tucked away into the beginning of chapter four, uh which is, as a genre label, science fiction is ostentatiously oxymoronic, and in a particularly ambiguous way. What are the forces of attraction and repulsion between these opposites? Where do they get their powers? In my view, SF has always engaged scientific ideas and speculations in order to affirm the freedom of the artistic imagination from the constraints of deterministic and oppressively systematic ideas. Exaggeratedly rationalistic theories ignore SF's fundamentally playful performance of scientific thinking. And that's a statement of war with Suvin. Like, yes. again, in a way that I think is really interesting and generative, but this is straightforwardly saying Suvin is overly rationalistic by focusing on this idea of science fiction as producing critical thinking. It's the wrong kind of critical because what SF should do is produce freedom, not freedom in the sense of political liberation, but freedom in the sense of 
You are allowed to pretend science doesn't say what it does, or even to question how much science can really say in ways that science fiction makes available. Yeah, and I, I think that is... I mean, I would now be an okay time, then, to get into this idea of science fiction as play? Because I yeah, think this I chapter think so. really yeah, is like, where I he think talks we can about basically, it. There's a ton of really interesting examples in this chapter. There's a thing about Star Trek science that I think we should touch on. But I think that science fiction as play and this chapter are so closely interlinked, we're not going off the chapter to talk yeah. about it. Yeah, so, so he... He talks about science fiction as play a lot. He uses, every time he uses the word ludic, that's what he means, related to play. And I think it is so interesting that he understands, or at least when he talks about it here, he understands play as a matter of freedom from constraints. Yes. Because one of the very common ways of defining a game is that it has constraints. Yes. And ultimately, I think that that is part of his definition, right? Is that he believes that it, it wouldn't be playing with science if we didn't have the science to play with, right? Yes. Um, but it's almost as though the kind of rules and, uh, you know, the constraints of the techno-scientific episteme, it's almost like those are already established. And yeah. so science fiction can be sort of pure freedom, pure play. Yes, um, we're... Since we are beginning from the constraints, the increase in play allows us to become more free. In fact, I think there's a line here which is talking about um, uh, Wells, which is H.G. Uh, Wells actually gets cited a lot because H.G. Wells does have a similarly playful sense of science fiction, or scientific romance is the genre that Wells wrote, um, because he was before Hugo Gernsback, and therefore before science fiction. But Wells held that the function of science and scientific romance was to create convincing parameters for the reader to assent to the constraints of the imaginary world. And that, uh, that idea of the function of science is to allow you to believe in things that, uh, in science fiction, that don't actually exist and don't actually fit within science. To some extent, I think the idea is that science fiction turns the scientific uh, rules of the world into the rules of a game that you can then game. You can then try your best, not cheating, but try your best to get outcomes that science that science would not really like. Um, try your best to effectively trick, in a positive sense, the reader into accepting things as scientific that are not for the purpose of getting them to accept that they might move beyond scientific epistemological spaces, beyond a sort of raw materialism to other kinds of ideas and uh, other kinds of freedom. Yeah, so this is an idea that I don't necessarily, like, I am not out here waving my flag to say I think this is wrong, but the idea that play truly allows you to get beyond the rules of the game you are playing, I think is quite controversial. Um, in, like, game studies. Yeah, no, um, I, I think that makes sense. In the same way that I think the idea of, like, something that I don't think he really addresses here, at least not explicitly, is that by playing that game, you may get really fascinating imaginative flights within a scient uh, scientific uh, episteme, but you are also ratifying the rules of the game. You are yes. also saying, I care about science. And we can see many... Many science fiction fans having a very blinkered and and like structured in a negative sense idea of what is scientifically possible and what is possible in science fiction, and that's not coming from them all reading Darko Suvin and deciding that uh, cognitive estrangement is the true purpose of the genre. Most of them would be 
outright opposed to Suvin. One of them is named Gary. No, that's unfair. Um, I, uh, Gary, Gary Westfall, Westfall <laughs> is a science fiction uh, studies guy who is not a fan of Suvin. I think that's completely uncontroversial to say. Uh, he is referenced in this book. He's done some really interesting work. Um, but he very much uh, takes a very strongly Gernsbachian approach to the genre, going back to its roots in 20s, 26 pulp. And that's his deal. Um, so uh, the... The idea that play within these scientific boundaries will necessarily create that freedom and that sort of ludic escape from a uh, rigidly bound uh, techno-scientific episteme, I'm not sure if that's more true than that dealing with the critical edge of science fiction and its cognitive estrangement will create liberatory political sentiment and reimagination of the world. In fact, I think if either of these are true, neither of them have created a mass political movement of science fiction fans or a mass liberation of science fiction fans from these constraints. So, to some degree, both of these are hopeful descriptions of science fiction. Both of these are potentialities that we want science fiction to have and to unleash. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested, uh, there's a... a Gosh, we quote a lot, but I don't think it's wrong to do. I just no, no, we're reading um, a book. <laughs> the uh, I think one of the places where he maybe best sums up this like ludic understanding of science fiction um, is that science fiction transforms technoscience from the way of the world into an evidently inexhaustible font of rationalized, playful world stories. And I think the the optimism here or the hope is really in evidently, evidently inexhaustible. Like, he, he he truly views science fiction's play with technoscience as, like, a... It, a holy grail. Yeah, a holy grail. It's infinitely fertile. And now I want to go from that. That's such a good segue. Um, he also wants it to be a source of myth. He yes. wants it to reproduce mythic uh, structures and mythic sort of generative uh, recuperatory images uh, within uh, discussion in a form that is acceptable to the, uh, you know, rationalized modern subject who lives within a techno-scientific episteme that believes it can exclude myth. Now, I'm so overstating the case how much the modern subject does exclude myth, and I think he's kind of overstating the degree to which science fiction is uniquely or specifically a source of myth. I think that this sort of mythic reading of science fiction ironically, is more common with fantasy. Fantasy is often read as a, like, pure storehouse of myth and its survival into modern social orders. Uh, fantasy is barely mentioned in this book. Um, one time, it's mentioned in the idea that uh, the cognition effect, which is a thing we'll get to in a bit very briefly, allows you to avoid demoting SF that has been proven scientifically inaccurate to fantasy. And that line says so much when fantasy doesn't show up otherwise. Demoting. Yeah. Oh, God, the poor fantasy, the... What's the the, the younger sister? Oh. Yeah, yeah, no, look, there's seven beauties, and then there's their younger sister who will never get married. <laughs> God. Uh, um. But yeah, no, it's... um. There's a bit of a taming of the shrew situation going on with fantasy and science fiction, in my opinion. But I'm not going to expand on that. <laughs> yeah, so, wow. All right. No, no, um, moving on, moving on. So one of the examples, I, I actually was, this, this is pulling from future history, but there's an example of uh, 
his read on uh, time paradoxes as a genre, like the the idea of uh, the grandfather paradox, what happens if I go back in time and kill my own grandfather? Do I cease to exist or what happens there? This is a whole body of like science fiction stuff. And his line on it is, these questions all come down to a single overarching interrogation. How can a conscious mortal being return to its origins when it is fated to travel down a one-way road to death? And like this way of reading literature, that is to say, archetypal, mythic, that it ultimately, these elaborate, complicated things can be boiled down to less their specificities than attempts to deal with human universals is not bad. (laughs) But I do think that saying all science fiction stories about time travel and its complicated maneuvers are specifically about extremely mythic mortality fated to walk down the one-way road to death. Yeah, that's not what the female man is about, and that's a time travel story. Yeah, it's also not what uh, Kindred is about, which is a time travel story. It's yeah. Not, like, there's a, I don't mean to uh, beat up on Chichere Ronai for this one. I just think that this is an example of the mythic frame creating simplifications that I don't think stand up. Yeah. And that mythic frame shows up not uncommonly in this in this book, because I think it fits directly into the idea of free science, of the ludic nature of science fiction, because what it is freeing you to do is to introduce myth forms back into a closed, rationalized space. It is freeing the author and the reader to delight in myths that are theoretically closed out by rationality. Now, I'm very interested in this idea, because I think science fantasy, the specific subgenre that, say, the Book of the New Sun is in, does this, though I would say less with myth in a sort of generic sense than specific religious ideas, but I don't think it's all science fiction. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's universally common, but there are theorists who do argue this, and he cites some of them. He does defend this point. I just want to point out that it's an important element of the freedom of imaginary science being presented. (sighs) So, Besides that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? <laughs> um, there's other stuff going on in this chapter as well. Um, I So, I honestly think we might move on. Okay, I do want to briefly mention the Star Trek thing. Okay, yes, let's talk Which about is Star Trek specifically science. going away from discussions uh, of like science and its representation, its freedom within science fiction. There's also science fiction sort of reintegration into science, which he is, I think, really interestingly critical of. This is not a pro uh, or purely positive image of this interaction, where the idea is the image people have of science becomes influenced by science fiction that is itself free science. And so science becomes imbued as an institution in the real world with impossibly expansive powers. And this is sort of the This, I would say, is the negative flip side of free science as it's being introduced here is Star Trek science, where people start to assume that replicators, teleporters, uh, faster-than-light travel, uh, faster-than-light communication, these must be possible because we've seen them so many times in science fictional depictions that there must be a way to game the actual science that we know to produce these possibilities. That free science, when reintroduced into the scientific endeavor... It can produce things that are interesting and are quite uh, fascinating. He's not strictly against those, but it can also produce unrealistic and even occasionally uh, dangerous, 
understandings. I think techno-optimism is a thing that doesn't get named specifically, but like the idea that, oh yeah, we'll figure out a silver bullet solution for climate change technologically. We'll just be able to fix everything with machines because they do it in science fiction so often is a real pattern of thought. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. Um... So there's this, uh, there's this idea of science being corroded by science fiction as sort of a side effect of the positive elements of science fiction that he, he is engaging with. He is taking his, his theory of science fiction, and this is his theory of science fiction, all the way and discussing its negative outcomes as well, which I do really appreciate. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Yep, yep. Let's, let's, let's move on. To the, the science fictional beauty? sublime, the fifth beauty. Yep. Um, so let's let's start out by describing the sublime. Yes. Um, it's an idea from the history of aesthetic philosophy, um, and it is essentially a kind of emotional reaction or a, a reaction of some kind, an aesthetic reaction, really, um, to. Basically, something that is too big or too powerful or in some way too much for the human mind to actually handle. It's overwhelming. Yes. And um, it so there is something then that, like, the mind, the rationality can't handle. Uh, there is something shocking and uh, some kind of, like, recoil. But then there is also some kind of recuperation where uh, whatever it is that is so incomprehensible is brought into rational uh, understanding. Yeah, a way uh, it gets described here is um, the thing that is too large is overwhelming to the individual human. Um, but then there's some way in which the person that you are can overwhelm it in turn. Kant specifically is like, well... You are connected to universal reason by your faculties of reason, and universal reason is larger than the mountain or ocean or infinite blackness of space that you are perceiving that is causing you to have this experience. And thus, you can understand the thing and in cap cap capturing it by reason, be able to handle it. And that recuperation is sort of at part of the sublime. For Burke, who also talked about the sublime, I think earlier, but I'm not positive, uh, it's more that you know you're safe, like you're standing on the shore of the ocean seeing the waves is sublime because you know the ocean could absolutely pound you to pulp and drown you, but you're not accessible to the ocean. You're over here, um, which is slightly less interesting in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, um, and uh, he he goes into like a summary of uh, Kant and Burke and yep, the sublime. Yep. Um, so can we talk about what is the science fictional sublime? Like, what is the 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 particular sublime that he's interested in, in or that he believes yeah, is unique to yeah. science fiction? And it's basically the idea that there are avenues to the sublime experience, which is a sort of universal one that different fiction and different works of art and different aesthetic experiences can access. There are unique avenues in science fiction that have their own particular qualities. And a lot of that has to do with specifically the experience of the sublime in, like, techno-scientific uh, objects. Yes. In um, machines that are sublime because they're so fast and powerful and strong, that's the dynamic sublime, a, a force. 
or things like outer space and the vistas of the sublime, the, I think it's called the numerical sublime when it's just too big, um, that you can access in situations where humans simply can't go without science fiction. Um, so there's a certain science fictionality to, you know, going up in the Apollo spacecraft and looking out at space and realizing how small, or realizing how small the pale blue dot is in this account of the science fictional sublime. And your average fiction cannot capture that. Yeah. Um, he's got, uh, he does have a nice little set of definitions. Ooh, yes. Um, which we should go through. The things he says that are specific about the science fictional sublime, uh, of course, it is playful. <laughs> yep, yep. Obviously, it is playful. Yep, yep. Um, which, boy, that's very interesting to me, the idea that the sublime can be playful. Yeah, it's the... One of the... One thing he has a lot in common with Suvin, actually, is the idea that an element of satire, maybe not consciously expressed, is inherent to science fiction. That it is fundamentally a little bit taking the wind out of the sails of things, even when it's very self-serious, because of the play that is at its base. Whereas for Suvin, that satirical edge is the other side of satire. It's it's not a satirical moon because it's funny, it's a satirical moon because it makes us think about our society. Um, so the idea that uh, the sublime is always a little bit playful, because we invented this thing, we're messing around with it, it's not the sublime straight up. Yeah. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's evocative objects are all imaginary. Um, which I, I think that's, so in, in that context, it does sound a little bit like he's saying the vastness of space doesn't count, I think, but... I think the vastness of space is allowed to count as long as it's seen from a spaceship. Yes, like, I think that like, makes sense. I said there's a little bit of science fictionality to the Apollo situation, but I do think that, like, in order for it to be fictional, it has to, or science fictional, it has to not be a thing that you can do really. Yes. And I can actually think of a few instances in specifically um, Delaney's uh, Stars in My Pocket Like Grains of Sand that are literally just a character experiencing the sublime through a spaceship portal in a way that you couldn't do in the real world because we cannot get that close to the sun and not get fried and things like that. Yes. Um, Alright, the next quality is its objects are all mediated by science, um, which... You know, makes sense. Yeah, like, they're, and by mediated, it's they're either understood, discovered, or invented through it. And their mysteriousness is constrained by this, which I think is an interesting point. Because the sublime often has an element of because it's overwhelming to the mind, because it is difficult to comprehend it, it is mysterious. Yeah. Um, um, it is tempered by the constant presence of grotesque elements. So we haven't talked about the grotesque yet, but this no, is but a... A, a related aesthetic yes, concept. Yes, and the, we talked about it being dialectically related. He uses the word dialectic here, so Mark was right on the money with that description. Yeah, I, I don't think that's just uh, his idea. No, no. But I do think that it's... Uh, there's a reason in terms of length why these are two separate chapters, but the SF Sublime chapter begins with the phrase, the sense of wonder, sublime slash grotesque. So the grotesque is to be annoying, always already present in this discussion of the sublime. Yes. Um, and then the final quality that he lists as uh, inv being involved in the science fictional sublime, the SF megatext has a playful discounting effect on it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's things like, you know, a black hole can be sublime the first time. If you have enough black holes in the SF megatext, it becomes known to you as a reader. It becomes less potent in the sublime, it's discounted, because 
there's so many black holes, you've interacted with them in different ways, an individual presentation can do something different with it, but, you know, there's also going to be things like jokes in Futurama about using a black hole as a waste disposal device. Yes. Um, but uh, I, I do think that, you know, uh, much as it seems to me that his science fictional sublime is like a corralled sublime, mm-hmm. um, I don't necessarily think that's, like, inaccurate of him. Yeah, um, I mean... I think the way I would put it is, I don't think he's saying you can't have a an intense sub, uh, sublimity within uh, science fiction, that you can't have moments of the really intense uh, sublime. He uses Frankenstein as an example, because Frankenstein is romantic in the sense that it is, uh, you know, from the romantic period. Shelley is uh, one of the romantics in every meaningful way, including social, and... It's also taking place in sublime contexts, in, like, grand mountains where you have dramatic encounters, you have the ocean, you have the elements of the sublime are very straightforwardly the backdrop to the story of Frankenstein, and which is, I think, a really interesting point he makes. Um, he does make other points about Frankenstein that I'd argue with, but they're clearly, like, positions scholars have taken and that are being referenced here as part of a, uh, a a demonstration rather than being like staking a flag this is my new interpretation of this 200 year old book yeah um so you can have very straightforward sublimity in science fiction but the vast majority of it is yeah it's playful it's corralled as you put it it's made more easily accessible and easily discountable. Yeah, and I think this has something to do with... Uh, it's not just science fiction, but as he talks about the the techno-sublime, which is, like, not yet fully the science fictional sublime because it's mm-hmm. not fictional, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, But a big part of what's happening with the techno-sublime is, like, people looking at, um, you know, like, let's say starting in the 19th century, like the Transcontinental Railroad, or people looking at the atomic bomb. Yes. And... Having the sublime reaction, but then also having the ultimate recuperation, right? And being yeah, like, like the recuperation's already present in. We did that exactly, not and me necessarily, but we. Yes, and so it's almost like it 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 starts from and ends with a position of even greater security than the kind of uh, recuperation rem- of universal reason. Yes, um, because there's it, like. Or at least that's how it seems to me. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And in fact, there's a section here about, well, what happens when something that really should have a sublime terror reaction, because uh, terror is the traditional way of describing the reaction to the sublime, awe and terror. What if something that should have that reaction doesn't as much because uh, science fiction is fully incorporated, which is summed up in the phrase, Every mushroom cloud has a silver lining, a criticism one science fiction author gave to the rest of them about how every time you have a nuclear apocalypse in science fiction, it leads into some kind of adventure story after, it leads into something exciting and interesting. You very rarely get a nuclear war that just ends and everything is awful in science fiction, especially mid-century science fiction. Yeah. So, the um, now, there is the note that atomic weapons are kind of the techno-sublime, not the science-fictional sublime, but the techno-sublime returning in force to terror and awe, and then just, like, a certain sublime fear dominates culture for half a century. So it's not as though the techno-sublime can't be genuinely terrifying, but we start to recuperate it 
maybe a bit more quickly than we should have. We get used to the A-bomb. Yes. Yeah, I, I was particularly struck by, um, and, and this is not uh, him, he's quoting this uh, from, who is this? Nye. What's Nye's first name? Damn, it, the it's citation earlier, is Yeah, yeah, it's early in, earlier in the chapter. Someone named Nye. Yes, well, hold on. I, I'll, I'll uh, if it. I'm going to directly quote him, I think I should say his whole name. David E. Nye. Thank you. Um, who seems to be the person who uh, establishes... the term techno-sublime? Yeah, establishes the techno-sublime. Yeah. Um, so he quotes Nye talking about the technological sublime uh, and says uh, that with, with atomic weapons, the technological sublime in which the observer identifies with the power of a man-made object becomes absurd. Who identifies with the bomb? And I'm like, everyone who's ever played Fallout. Yeah, yeah. Like, unfortunately, I don't think that atomic destruction is, like, uh, it is no longer, strictly speaking, sublime in our culture. Yes, no, it's, there has been a a recuperation, maybe more of one than is uh, healthy, of these uh sublime terrors and a lot of that is through the language of science fiction the uh the ability to continue to exist after the atomic war is science fictional and also the um the ludic thing he's talking about the 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 joking the the play um yeah no the idea that you can make jokes about the nuclear apocalypse that aren't the kind of like terror humor of dr strangelove but rather I get to lob a nuke. Yes. No, there's there's a lot going on there that I think is really interesting. And again, uh, I don't think we can really go through every example here because the some of the case studies are like this really interesting reading of 2001: A Space Odyssey, the Kubrick film. I do want to mention that, yeah, as in order a to long one. in order to really get into uh, the kind of like fully demonstrated science fictional sublime, as opposed to like in Frankenstein, uh, the full kind of like techno sublime thing has not come into being yet yes that Um, is very much here's the place where what will become the science fictional sublime branches off of the romantic sublime very straightforwardly here's like how frankenstein is critical of the romantic sublime and transforms it and importantly introduces the grotesque and the literal grotesquerie of the creature's body which causes people to react in ways that are not the sublime terror of its, uh, of, or his intellect. I was going to say it's the novel, but I realized I was talking about the creature. His intellect, his, uh, philosophical claims, his willingness to violence, his power, but instead the straightforward revulsion, the grotesque r- moment of seeing the body that is disfigured in this way. Yeah. Um, but I do want to just mention that when he talks about 20th century science fiction, um, and the sublime, the two works he chooses are both films. Yes, um, and I, I think well, there, uh, there's a third one, but it's a special one, which is the uh, the uh, up the walls of the world. Oh yes, sorry, the two of the three he chooses chooses yes. are films, um, and it it seems to me that there's an implication that like images are yeah. more able to present the sublime to us. I think that's a not uncommon uh, position, in fact. I think that the like the idea of film, especially, is being overwhelming. The idea that film forces you to become a spectator, a not in, or can force you into a kind of receptivity, is one that I've seen before in, I mean, I am not a film studies guy, but, I, but there is science fiction study stuff that I've read and media study stuff touching on it that's filmic. And 
one of the ideas is that film can induce a passivity, not must, or some people would argue must, but can, and that that, re that uh, receptivity, that taking in this thing that sort of overwhelms you has obvious resonances of the sublime. Yeah. Um, and so there's, uh, the films, by the way, there's Kubrick's 2001, there's also The Matrix, which has his sisters, The Matrix. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and then the one textual example besides Frankenstein is, uh, James Tiptree Jr.'s Up the Walls of the World. Yeah, and he's also engaging in that section with, like, feminist psychoanalytic understandings of the sublime. Yeah. Which, which are, um... There's a lot going on there? Yeah, I don't really enjoy um, theories of how feminine psychological development is fundamentally different from masculine yeah, psychological yeah. development. No, it's... I'm, I'm sure that uh, the people he's quoting have more um, have more to say about it than that, but that is kind of how it ends up yeah here. i mean it's also that this is very much uh psychoanalytic in the tradition of freud which does tend to have very i mean very specific gender constructions you know the oedipal thing comes in here this like, is i think what i would ultimately say is there's this one bit where he says he's he's um you know uh he's he's making use of a of patricia yeager's feminine sublime yeah um and uh he says I am not sure it is necessary to adopt Jaeger's theoretical apparatus derived from Sisu's critique of Freud to entertain this model. I simply disagree. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was reading this whole thing being like, there's a theoretical apparatus here, and I'm not sure I uh, want to adopt it. Yeah, no, I, I think a, a meaningful thing here is that that paragraph is, or a paragraph closer is introduced with the phrase, this model has been criticized from a feminist perspective for perpetuating the phalogocentrism held to be inherent in the Freudian model. And phalogocentrism is an interesting critical term that has a lot of psychoanalytic, I mean, baggage. It is a psychoanalytic term. It is going to be engaging in terms of the phallus and the phalogocentric way of thinking. And if you are not particularly engaged with that kind of psychoanalytic framework, it can very quickly become... I mean, frankly, I think these are some of the least readable or easily readable sections of the book, because while Chichere Rona is showing a remarkable facility to use different analytical frameworks, again, I think there's a certain... Um, uh, shoot, what's the term for, like, uh, an excellent violinist... Oh, virtuoso? Yes, there's a certain virtuoso style to this book, hopping between these different uh, approaches. I do think it gets hardest to follow if you're not a specialist in the sections that use psychoanalytic theory. And these are off. this is often the framework in which uh, he engages with feminist theory at all. Yes, yeah. I, I would say this book has a pretty shallow engagement with, like, feminist theory or, or really with gender in general um yeah and i think that part of that is that it's i do think it is deeply engaged with feminist psychoanalytic theory it's just that that's a very particular flavor of feminist theory yes yeah and you know again this is sort of inevitable with this kind of wide uh wide approach but it is notable yes do you want to uh move on move to, the, to grotesque? the grotesque the science fictional grotesque the sixth beauty and it's very clear that while they may all be related, this one and the Sublime are twins. Yes, yes. 
Um, okay, I kind of defined the sublime. Do you want to define the grotesque? I, I can try. Um, I, I was just trying earlier. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's fair. I think you did a good job. So the, um, the grotesque is the aesthetic effect of rather than going outward and the terror of the external world being overwhelming and, uh, the sort of the metaphor that comes to mind is the, the comparison shrinking the person down to a point. Uh, this opens up the body. It is, uh, it's going in, it's the terror or, you know, maybe the grossness, the grotesquerie of interior spaces being opened, of interpenetration of things that are not meant to interpenetrate or don't usually interpenetrate and thus become weird and multiple rather than a single massive universalizing effect, which is the, the sublime. It is a constant differentiation and multiplication of things that creates a sense of, uh, a similar sense of sort of disorientation. It is similarly an, maybe an awe-inspiring and overwhelming effect. And, and, uh, and, and like a repulsive. Yes. Repulsive is the right word. I don't mean, I don't necessarily mean awe-inspiring. I mean repulsive. It is a similarly repulsive effect in that it pushes you away before you sort of recuperate it or don't recuperate it. But in this case, that effect is internal, multiple, and proliferating. It's also very biological. Yeah, and, and also um, transformational. Things, yes. Things changing is also part yes. of the grotesque. Things changing. One of the lines that I really like from this, from talking about Cronenberg, which... The film also shows up. The the sort of aesthetic effect chapters of the sublime and the grotesque touch a lot on film. Um, Is the idea that in Cronenberg, flesh desires to be freed from the body. That uh, the... um, that the transformations of bodies in Cronenberg's uh, um, films, the mutations that happen, are representations not just of, like, something has gone wrong, but that there's a latent desire for transformation in flesh, and that it has been confined to a specific form and is now getting to run free. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, in fact, to... Uh, it also... to directly like take from the initial pages of the sixth beauty part of the point here is breaking rules the grotesque is transgressive it causes the breakdown of rules and orders whereas the sublime ultimately reifies them and sort of uh, magnifies them to universals um and the grotesque is specifically associated ironically with a very materialist critical viewpoint in this chapter with a pleasure in corporeal existence, with a rejection of, like, sort of aristocratic or priestly norms for pure, uh, a certain hedonic corporeality. Um, the antique example, or the ancient example being, ancient's not the right word, the older example, the pre-science fictional example being Rabelais's, uh, Micromagus. Or is it Micromagus? I do not remember. No, I'm that's, sorry. I think that's Voltaire. Never mind. Uh, the but the giant in Rabelais, who's like this uh, huge hedonistic Epicurean being, whose body is too much for states and churches to constrain, and so simply enjoys pleasure and a philosophy of the body, and that that's sort of the I think it's Bakhtin whose uh, concept of the grotesque is being brought forward there as a populist freeing idea, whereas the sublime can easily become associated with power structures, with kings and churches. The grotesque is earthy and individual and populist. 
Yeah, he also does argue that essentially, like, scientific materialism uh, changes this relationship. Yes. By kind of uh, bringing physical phenomena back under the control of, not back. Um, but defining it as being law-driven. Yes. It's it's no longer a sphere of mutation, or rather, if mutation is known and understood to be the effect of genes and gene sequences, you now have taken something that appeared like, you know, the flesh finding its freedom, and it's now, well, actually there's these rules, there's these laws that define it. Yes, and but that also ultimately opens up the space specifically for the scientific, uh, the science fictional grotesque in the, like... Uh, the violation and the the deviation from the laws of the physical universe. Yes, the laws of the physical universe, the understood scientific realities, the I mean, the novelty of a science fictional novum that is grotesque allows it to break rules and cause new things. Um, and what's interesting here is that he's also sort of criticizing Bakhtin, not like in the sense that he's saying Bakhtin's morals were incorrect, or like his, his position was bad, but rather that Bakhtin did not understand that the new canon of scientific materialism would not create a corporeal Epicurean world, but rather an equally rarefied one. And this is where we see that idea of the high priests of science coming back. The idea that the grotesque allows for a response to... Uh, you know, to a world of and science fiction in general, thus being grotesque, allows for a response to a techno uh, a techno scientific episteme that has become just as much a sort of controlling organizing force. Yeah, he refers to the kind of objects that um, the the grotesque objects and also sublime objects. But this is the chapter where he introduces this term. He calls them anomalies. Yes. Um, and it, essentially that. I mean, he, as he literally puts it, SF, on, SF audiences expect disturbing anomalies. Um, so, you know, these are these are just sort of part of the fiction itself. Yes. And uh, this, um, you know, this desire for anomalies, for aesthetic effect, is again linked to this idea of science fiction as freeing, as breaking you free of laws of science, of accepted structures, of... Um, of the techno-scientific episteme in the real world. Uh, I really like this line as well, which is, um, when the physical becomes the basis for the sublime, bodies are set free to mock the physical order and bring it back to life. In the SF grotesque, it is laws, not bodies, that leak. Yes. And so there's this idea of um, the body of law, which is sublime, is sort of brought out of the material universe, and then when the material universe starts flaunting those laws, that is grotesque. <coughs> Excuse me. So, you know, obviously, one of the examples is uh, organic weirdness and biology. If uh, the techno-sublime is usually big machines, starships, and, you know, uh, space anomalies, I use black holes as an example, uh, the... Uh, science fictional grotesque, or sorry, the science fictional sublime, the science fictional grotesque is often biological and oozing. Although the interesting thing is, he talks about this in the phases of the SF yeah, grotesque yeah, yeah. thing. There are actually kind of like less, uh, there, there's like a, a movement through different like stages of it or different stages that are possible. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he, he's talking about a process, but it's also, I think, kind of a process that can, uh, like stop at earlier more abstract points yeah um 
so like he talks about the mathematical grotesque the idea of like some kind of uh some kind of essentially like messiness in scientific or mathematical ideas um and i don't think he's really trying to claim that like people have like a a especially strong reaction to like an inelegant proof yeah Um, yeah. but really just trying to say okay this does actually exist or can exist in mathematics yeah Um, yeah. it doesn't have to be biological it doesn't have to be physical there are different ways the grotesque can manifest in uh the whole world of science through science fiction yeah and i think it's interesting that he then moves to something he calls the scientific grotesque which is like uh anomalies that are you know, that are material that are available to scientific, uh, uh, you know, that are available analysis. to analysis. There we go. Thank you. Um, but that do, in some sense, break the laws of science as we understand them, which means that, like, black holes also belong in this category. Yeah, or yeah. at least or at until some point. they were brought into uh, scientific understanding. Exactly. So, yeah, no, there's a lot of different stuff for the grotesque. I really like this chapter for the sheer number of things it talks about. Uh, and the wide variety of different kinds of grotesqueries that it's sort of putting forward. The anomalies it discusses are wide and various. Um, Philip K. Dick shows up again as, like, um, one of the more abstract grotesques. Again, the way his worlds are grotesque is that there are these different competing novums that each hegemonize part of the story. You could almost say it's grotesque on the level of the science fictional novel. Yeah, the way he talks about Dick is interesting to me because... um... Like, I do think he is right to see uh, the grotesque in, um, in like, uh, the worlds of Dick's novels, the sort of uh, proliferation of, um, you know, as you said, different novums and uh, kind of almost like contradictory perceptions. Yeah. Um, but uh, there is forever the temptation to draw the direct analogy between Philip K. Dick's psychological experience of the universe and his books. Yeah. And he basically does that, and I just... Yeah. Don't... You... You can't be that literal with it. Like... <sighs> yeah, no, the... Look, Philip K. Dick's a whole body of work on his own. Yeah. Uh, um, I, I just... But no, it's good to note. He says this thing about uh, Dick being led to mimic his reader's interpretive urge, and I just... I don't think that Dick wrote the Tractatus because he was turning into a reader of Philip K. Dick, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, I, look, I think that there's, there's a lot going on with Philip K. Dick, and I do agree that not just, um, it's really not uh, Chichere Ronai in in particular, but the discourse of Philip K. Dick as the multiple novum guy is often quite simplifying. It's taking a particular aspect of Dick's whole deal and making it into his defining quality because he's been very useful as a figure within SF studies for this particular kind of uh, literature, this particular effect of the multiple novums upon the work. And this leads to interpreting him through that lens, I think, very easily, but also somewhat simplistically because, again, there's a lot going on with Philip K. Dick. Yes. And, you know, it's it's one of those things where I understand how this happens, and I think it's often useful to use him as a demonstrative example in this way, but it can easily slip into making claims about Philip K. Dick that run afoul of 
other parts of the there's a lot there to Philip K. Dick. Yeah. Uh, but there are also, um, while there aren't case studies of too many particular works, there's the Solaris again, uh, There's uh, and there's the Alien series, um, but there's more lists of things in yeah. this one, like a lot of lists of things. Yeah, he kind of goes into like different types of... Uh, anomaly? Gr- grotesque, yeah, anomaly, grotesque objects, interstitial beings, cyborgs, and aliens. And each of those sections is, to some extent, just a, not not just, but is largely structured by going quickly through many different science fiction yes. works. This, this particular set of the book, section of the book, is, I think, incredibly dense for this reason, but, like, really genuinely um, uh, rewarding to go through because... All of these examples are, generally speaking, pretty good. Um, there's occasional ones I'll disagree with, but for the most part, this really does help you get a sense of, yeah, no, the grotesque has been a big deal in science fiction. And part of this is that it can start getting into the horror elements, which horror has not really been a major part of the science fictional world discussed in future histories, imaginary science, stuff like that. But now you can get every B-movie, because they're almost all dealing in the grotesque. Very rarely do they deal primarily in the sublime. Uh, so interstitial beings are things that are two things, or more things, chimeras, combinations. Um, this includes things like uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon as a fish man, uh, but it also includes um, things like the thing or the blob, where they're so between things that they've completely lost an external form. Um and there's also, uh, like, mutants, things that are mutated or shaped. Um, there's also discussions of grotesque social organizations where, again, they're generally interstitial in that they're taking two things and melding them or combining them. Um, one example being Soylent Green with populations feeding on their own dead, as it's put, um, which is the movie version, not the, uh, the story version, which did not have the cannibalism. Uh, or even, bizarrely, I think this is a really interesting one. Uh, calling Gattaca an instance of the grotesque because yeah. it's a extrapolative uh, social underclass based on sort of genetic um, imperfection versus uh, you know um, genetic uh, ideal uh, health. I guess is the way to describe Gattaca. Yeah, I was I. When I was reading that that sentence where he talks about social behavior becoming grotesque, um, I definitely see that for for like cannibalism, like very yeah, simple yeah. violation of of boundaries that are normally not there. There, <laughs> yes. Um, I'm unsure about his statements about Ender's Game and Gattaca being grotesque. Um, yeah, it really does feel like it's what it feels like. There is dystopia light. This isn't yes. strictly a dystopia, which would be a different... The dystopia is not... Well, it can have grotesque. The dystopia as an object is not itself the same as the grotesque. and involves a whole other theoretical space that, for the most part, this book avoids utopia and dystopia. Um, yeah. Not totally, but mostly. And so, talking about these worlds, it really feels like you're saying these are grotesque social orders, but you're not talking about, like, Brave New World, which has a bunch of the grotesque in terms of, like boundaries being crossed and weirdness happening and and sexuality being fucked up and so on but it's a dystopia very straightforwardly or ironic utopia as huxley called it so what does that make of these and it feels like these are situations where the science fictional social world is bad but not 
the genre of dystopia, and so it's created weird and transgressive things without quite hitting that line. Yeah, I think my really big objection is to the Ender's Game thing, because the thing he's describing as grotesque is committing genocide via computer games, and I'm not really sure... Like, I guess maybe he's trying to claim that genocide and computer games are things between between which we normally have a hard and fast dividing line, and that's, like, not true, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, like, the if there's a grotesque gap there, grotesque intervals, he calls it, it's that the the thing we assume is true of the computer game, which is that it is fundamentally not ontologically real. It's dis- It's a- removed from an anchoring in reality. When I have my little dudes kill other little dudes at a computer game, nobody actually dies. This is pure representation. And I'm sure there's a bunch of game studies people who would howl at me for everything I just said. But, <laughs> but and then the, the idea. idea is that, yeah, the committing genocide by computer game, the actual grotesque reality is the fact that Fiction and reality have now been crossed over via science fictional structures that allow something that appeared to be only the appearance of genocide is actually the genocide. And in fact, this is a shock to the character as well in the moment. But I don't think that's a very good example. You're right. Yeah. Oh. But so there's a bunch of different like interstitial examples for just general varieties of grotesque that covers all sorts of ranges, um, and says a bunch of interesting and weird things throughout. Uh, there's also the section on cyborgs. Yeah, no, that's, that's very interesting. Um, I feel like, uh, I feel like the, the sort of theoretical idea of the cyborg is just so, so tempting for the science fiction scholar. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because it's a, I mean, as he points out, it's a, what he calls a real novum, a thing that was invented in science fiction and then came to occur in some way in the given world. Although, we have, that's a, please go on, finish your sentence. We have at least the beginnings of direct uh, man-machine linkages, like neural linkages. We have, you know, the monkey moving around the uh, controller on a screen with its mind, things like that. It's true. We do have things like that. It's just interesting to me because um, there are other parts of this book where he uses the word prosthesis extensively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it just all makes me very curious about, like, where do you draw the defining line? Yeah, and where does disability fit into this? Yeah, yeah, because, like... He does cite Haraway, who is, I think... If you want someone who's thinking about the cyborg, the prosthesis, disability, uh, f- feminism, all that stuff, Donna Haraway is your thinker, right? Yes, no, and, it's true. But it, it just... Um, that I, I'm curious what he means when he says that the cyborg has, has truly been invented, because, yeah, like, I... Uh, I love to joke, I used to do this more often, but I, I, I continue to enjoy joking that my IUD makes me a cyborg. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, like, I kind of think that's true, but then at the same time, I don't think he's referring to, like, technological inventions of, like, I, I, I don't know. It's it. Yeah, no, there, it's an interesting thing because the cyborg is a figure here that has a particular relationship. Like, I mean, the cyborg is the human-machine boundary breaking down and being pierced and leaking. That's the grotesque. Whereas, I don't think that this book is necessarily saying that, like, every prosthetic is a boundary-breaking and grotesque thing. It's The cyborg seems to really be, in a sort of Haraway sense, the fact that the person's sense of self and the machines around them become more porous and penetrable. Yeah. And... <clears throat> 
I also just don't agree with the line that the cyborg is exponentially more fluid than the monster, despite its frequent coding as a slave to its mechanical apparatus. The, the idea that monsters, which are the most polysemic thing in myth, literature, ever, like just monsters are ludicrously polysemic. It's their fundamental thing that makes them useful. The idea that the cyborg is not a variety of monster when seen from that direction, but rather a totally separate and even more polysemic thing. I just don't think that sentence is true. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I think that there's a desire here to elevate the cyborg as an, a very important and special category without just agreeing with Haraway that we've all been cyborgs for a couple hundred years now. Yeah, I think also maybe when he says monster, he is thinking specifically of biological hybrids. Maybe. And and I think that might be what... And this relies on a, like, uh, a distinction that, um... Haraway is, would scoff at. Yeah, bit. yeah. yeah. Like, not entirely, but yes. No, I think there's a lot going on, but I do think, again, the example cyborg stuff is really interesting. Again, yes. the lists here are good. Yes. Um, even when we're, we're nitpicking about the, the cyborgs. Then there's the section on aliens. Yeah. Um... He's also, he's very specifically talking about, um, like, intelligent life. When he yes, speaks he, in aliens. fact, he specifies, and I think it's a really interesting point. An alien is not a differently evolved animal. Alien fauna, such as dune sandworms, may have characteristics similar to alien intelligences, but the concept of the alien in SF demands that it be a differently evolved intelligent creature that stands over against the human in its ambiguous position between animal form and higher intelligence. And I don't think that's wrong. Like, I think that's actually a really penetrating insight that we have different categories between alien fauna like they are aliens we'll talk about them as aliens and in fact you can have a long argument about whether the alien in the movie alien is this or what he's talking about but the idea of the intelligent alien that is another subjective seer of the world that can have the sublime reaction presumably in the cognitive the sort of uh you know the that has access to this universal rationality or has its own subjectivity or however you want to frame it whatever theory you want to use the alien that is like us a especially if they're a technological inhabitant of a civilization etc occupies a very different point and creates a very different reaction than the straightforward, just like, you know, the big sandworm. Yes, no, absolutely. And and I think he's also very right when he says that, like, this idea of aliens as essentially alternate humans, yes. right, implies a whole set of beliefs about, I mean, about what humans are and what yes. intelligence is. And allows for the grotesque by disrupting that idea of what humans are and what intelligence is. The alien, by being another human that is also deeply different... There's a certain inherent uh, violation of boundaries and and uh, grotesquery, and I think that's really cool. I think I really like this section, even if I don't agree with all of the readings of the elements in the list. I really like the analytical frame it's bringing to the idea of the intelligent alien. Yeah. Uh, there's also um, some wild stuff in here as well. I don't want to say there's not. I think there's a fascinating line, um, which is, again, a, a sort of... Uh, this is a, a foray into pretty straightforward um, criticism, saying uh, hypertrophy, ha talking about how not just things that are sort of 
uh, considered negative or, or generally um, criticized become projected onto aliens. We can see humans, but more like that in various ways. You also have criticisms of dominant modes. For example, hypertrophied maleness is now also easily displaced onto alienness. Over and above the civilizational bullying characteristic of patriarchy, which SF usually projects onto non-Western primitives like Klingons or space Nazis, there is the grotesque and inexorable peculiarity of the phallus penis, which may act as an alien appendage. So there's wild stuff going on there about the phallus, but there's also that line about Klingons and space Nazis. Which is just wild. Like the I mean, he's not wrong that, like, the role that, uh... Like, like, he's not wrong to point to space Nazis as basically being in the same category as Klingons, yes. in the sense of, like... The antagonist of your space western. Yes, uh, or, or really of your space opera. Yes, yes. The, the antagonist that has qualities that are human-like, but has in some way bent them. And Klingons are orientalized, especially early Klingons. There's yeah. a... There's a yellow peril element to how Klingons are initially pre- represented, but the idea that space Nazis are a non-Western other is fascinating yeah. in the way you talk about it. I, I think the explanation for this, my, my attempt to sort of construct the reasoning behind that sentence, is the idea that Nazis are kind of the other of the liberal world order, which is here being glossed as Western, because the founding myth of the liberal world order is we beat the Nazis in World War II and established a better, you know, organization of the universe. That's the the basis for the liberal world order, especially after the Cold War, but even during the Cold War, where it was shared with the USSR, was... We beat the ultimate anti-civilizational forces of destruction, the Nazis, and now we are able to have a period of peace and prosperity in a better world. And the idea that, therefore, space Nazis, like, you know, the Empire and Star Wars being the most famous space Nazis around, are therefore being sort of separated out from liberal Western civilization is plausible, but at the same time, the space Nazis are also the British Empire. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a whole thing. I just think that, like, there's little lines like that and weirdness that are really interesting. Um, there's discussion of different source materials for aliens, such as, you know, sometimes aliens are modeled off of marginalized cultures, and that's kind of weird, and sometimes aliens are modeled off animals, and that's kind of cool, and, you know, various discussions like that. Uh, All right, I think I think we gotta move on. Move on to the technology ad? Yes, the technology ad. I'm just trying to see if there's any last grotesque things, because, oh, there's also the brief discussion of the, like, um, the genre grotesque, where different genres bleed into each other through the medium of the grotesque. I think that's an interesting point, but he really manages to go out of his way to avoid calling China Mievel's writing fantasy, and I think that that's bullshit. It's obviously fantasy. The number of theorists who try and argue that it's actually secretly not are wrong. End of sentence. I'm sorry, Mr. Chichere Rone. I love your book. <laughs> All right, so the technology ad. The technology ad. And um, do you want to introduce this one since I did the grotesque? Um, yeah, I can do that. Um, I'd, I'd also be happy to. Yeah, I mean, um, honestly, in this one, I, I think that the easiest way to define it is actually just his like sentence where he does that. Sure. Where he says the technology ad uh, is... As a whole, the technology ad is the epic of the struggle surrounding the transformation of the cosmos into a technological regime. And then he sees two different uh, versions of that. 
the space opera and the techno Robinsonade. Yes, and specifically this is giving, you know, as we mentioned earlier, giving science fiction its own narrative form. It's arguing that science fiction does produce specific narrative forms unique to the genre that in the same way that the you know, mystery is unique to the mystery and the romance is unique to the romance, right? Like that the genre does have its own narrative forms that can only exist in the genre and therefore are a beauty of science fiction. I don't know that I believe that the space opera depicts the world becoming technological the way this is put forward. I think he just has two different stories that are unique to the science fictional. Yeah, I think that... Yes, I don't think the thing he is describing as space opera is what I would call space opera. Um, hmm. Like, I just, I don't think he's describing Star Trek. I mean, that's fair, but Star Trek is a is an interesting case within space opera, you know? I think Star Trek is the space opera. See, this is, this is part of the reason that you'll always have arguments about space opera is, very straightforwardly, People who like space opera and people who dislike space opera tend to have those really influence their frameworks, and so we receive, historically, all these different accounts of what is the text of space opera, what is the collection of works that are space opera, besides the most obvious, like, you know, Star Wars-style ones, which are definitely space opera, but they can fit into different parts of a Venn diagram that someone might be building. Yeah, yeah. Like, I... I will say, I think there are elements of Star Trek that are very similar to his account of space opera. Do we want to just give his account of space opera in brief? Um, yeah, sure. Yeah, do you mind if I? Yeah, go ahead. So the basic idea of space opera is that it is an adventure story in which the protagonists move from planet to planet and fundamentally relies on a term that is from Star Trek, which is anything can happen in space. That it allows for totally different worlds and planets to be visited, you can have regions with different science fictional qualities, and that you can tie all of this together into a grand adventure epic that has this sort of massive science fictional capacity. Um, and this includes things like... Uh, um, one element is the extension of time to space. You can have different planets be at different points in history. You can also extend space to time and have time travel. Space becomes the sort of flexible medium across which an adventure story is able to, like, just exceed. It's effectively the ultimate ludic playground. Space is a place for the adventure story to play. Yeah, yeah, and I guess it's not so much that I... Totally dismiss that or think that Star Trek isn't that, like, at all. But, um, I don't know. It, I just, I think space opera is much more historically and, like, uh, culturally determined than yeah. his kind of, uh, attempts to define it theoretically. No, I, I think that's probably fair, but I also think that his, uh, description of space opera and adventure stories has real theoretical interest. I quite like this part of the chapter. For example, there's a line here that I think is really interesting, which is, Thus science provides space opera with what it needs most to sustain the adventure scene, a plausible universe of plural, simultaneous, reversible space-time continua. Clearly, if our mundane world is only a tiny station in a gigantically diverse cosmos, our novelistic norms of social conduct and consciousness will seem provincial at best. Basically... You can have all sorts of story and the kind of novelty adventures need because anything can happen in space, because you can go to wholly other places. You can, I mean, frankly, I think Star Wars does get pride of place in this description because 
a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, is the kind of move that science is being made to play in space opera, where it's opening up vistas for new adventure. Yeah, that's fair. Yep, and uh, this is usually going from uh, planet to planet. That is like the classic Star Trek, the original series. We're going to go to a new planet every week kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um... Uh, but yes, I think space opera is being presented as the ultimate free play zone of science fiction that can, where you can do all sorts of things and where therefore myth can re-enter. Yeah. <sighs> do we want to talk then about the, the techno Robinsonade, the modern adventure tale? I have the sense you have a lot more bones to pick with this one. I do have bones to pick with this one, yes. But most of them are just... Um, I mean, honestly, most of them are just, this seems like it's really looking at things through that mythological lens. Yeah, I don't think we want to go into all the different figures. There's a reason this is the longest chapter. Yeah, and like, it sort of, like, it's also like, there's, he has this list of essentially characters who appear in the Techno Robinsonade, and they are like, adapted from figures who appear in the Robinsonade. Which is... So first he has to explain... First he has to present a theory of the Robinsonade in its archetypes. Then he has to say, how have those changed in the techno-Robinsonade? And also, how are they inverted in the Gothic? Which I think is a really cool little aside for the record. And finally, how... What does this all mean for the genre? Which makes for a very long process. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I can attempt to do a quick summary of each of these... Uh, no, I really don't no, think okay, we can. Okay. We don't have time. And I I think if you want to know about the handyman, the fertile corpse, the willing slave, the shadow mage, etc., etc., you can go the read this book. The tool text and the wife at home. That's all of them. Okay, yes. If you want to learn about all of those, you should go read this book. No, um, that is fair. And it is an interesting framework for understanding adventure stories. I do think it is worth reading. I just think it might be a lot less usefully applicable as a way of talking about science fiction than it hopes to be. That's my real bone to pick with it, that these myth forms, the degree to which they have to mutate to fit almost all of the science fictional examples given throughout this book is immense. I have something brutal to say. Yeah? It's TV tropes. Okay, no, that's unfair. Te- it's it's not actually TV tropes, it's but... It's young, if anything. Sure. but But, like, the... The Shadow Mage literally being a Jungian reference. Yes, but when you say that it has to bend so much to accommodate everything, I really do feel a sense in this chapter of, like, going through a bunch of classic works of science fiction and being like, well, can I find all the corresponding little bits here, you know? Um, it's yeah, a- I, I'm a little more charitable about this. I am still... I still don't think it's an incredibly useful way to approach these these stories. Some of the examples just don't feel like they fit and are touched on too quickly. I think there's a repeating issue of trying to uh, describe Borges's Tlon uh, Ukbar Orpis Tertius, a story I adore, uh, as science fiction and fitting it into the categories in this book in ways that I think you could. I think it's actually got a lot of the science fictional sublime in it, for example. But the way it ends up getting used makes it really feel like it's been prodded and twisted to fit into the framework. Describing the Encyclopedia of Tlon as a science fictional tool text just seems straightforwardly inaccurate. And so there's a bunch of oddness there. Um, so yeah, no, I we are both quite critical of this chapter. 
Yes, yes. Um, um, I do. I do want to again say. I think the bit on the gothic is really good because it's uh, describing a way in which you can read the gothic as an inversion of the adventure story. And I think that that relationship is far more interesting than science fiction came from the adventure story and therefore trying to find all of the archetypes of science fiction continuing from adventure story archetypes. That one's, like, historically plausible that science fiction comes from the adventure story, but I think it's gone in new directions. It's got things that don't really fit these archetypes anymore, and you have to do a lot of hammering to make it fit. Whereas the gothic and adventure story were more or less contemporary, and were speaking back and forth to each other in a very believable way. Yeah, and, and I do think that, like, you know, there are there are modern adventure stories, especially yes. modern science fiction adventure oh, yeah, stories. There are modern gothics, especially modern science fiction gothics. Yeah, yeah. Um, and fantasy, which never gets mentioned. Yeah, it is plenty of... Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't think... I really do think that you can do things with the framework of the technology ad, but I don't know if it's unique to science fiction, and... I think he's using it a little too broadly. Yeah, I do think that it ends up feeling a lot like I've made this frame for the Robinson odd, which, you know, I think is solidly explained. And now I'm going to really make that speak to the entirety of science fiction. And I'm, you know, that's that's the place where I don't follow. Um, there are a bunch of like wild or interesting things said here as a result of this, like trying to figure out how to fit these together. There's the straightforward statement that uh, the wife at home archetype just doesn't seem to show up as much in SF and you have to get really weird to make it fit. Um, and again, it's one of those things where it's like, maybe this function just doesn't exist anymore and the archetypes have really mutated more than you're willing to allow them to. And there's also the finale, which is this sort of description of how the handyman and the tool text and all of the elements of this fuse into one forward motion towards transcendence, which feels like, I don't know, maybe this was all written to get to that point, but it feels very much like it stopped being a description of the genre by the end there and has become more like a potentiality of science fiction, of pure freedom. Yeah. Um, also, I, I feel like we should mention just that... It the the Robinsonade is the adventure story. The, the Robinsonade, the adventure story, are like the narratives of imperialism. Yes, and and that that is criticized and discussed in this section. It totally is. I I just didn't want us to be throwing around Robinsonade without any sort of mention. No, that, that like, that's fair. It uh, is... That's that's that narrative structure comes with a huge amount of baggage that I think science fiction often inherits. Um, yes, and if this had been primarily about the inheritance of science fiction from the Robinsonade in that manner, rather than being about trying to construct the archetypes and then make them function, if it had been more about that historical rather than structural inheritance, the structural inheritance would have come along. But again, this is this is criticizing after the, uh, after the fact. Um, but that is the seventh beauty of science fiction. Yeah, yeah, all right. Do, uh, I think that's all the discussion I want to get into on, like, the main body of the book, do you want to get into our rankings? Well, first, I do want to briefly discuss the concluding unscientific postscript. Okay, yeah, we can do that first. Uh, because it just begins with something incredible, which is, while writing this book, I came to realize that it was coursing inexorably towards the singularity. <laughs> and, like, not to be too 
bitter, because this was 2008. I also believed in the singularity at this time, and he is more skeptical about it than a lot of people are when writing about it. But this book does, when you, when you look back over the seven beauties of science fiction, and you think about the places where it has a where it imagines a, you know, what is the point of science fiction, this kind of free play and ultimate freedom? What is its other structure, myth structures? These things start to not just underpin it, but lead towards this conclusion. The, the singularity is the techno-scientific, the science fictional myth that is most prominent in the early 21st century and arguably continues to be incredibly powerful. It is a great example of Star Trek science in that it went from a literal science fictional hypothesis proposed by uh, Werner Vinge into being a political ideology, a way people understand the world, a bizarre outcropping of the techno-scientific episteme into this idea that it is now gone from the free play of futures that he imagines science fiction to a single inescapable black hole that is, you know, AI building AI or hyper-intelligent extrapolation, etc. And very straightforwardly, the singularity is a very implausible hypothesis. It doesn't actually have the kind of inevitability or even the kind of plausibility that it claims to have in its common form. It is a myth structure of human freedom exploding or human annihilation exploding out of a science fictional way of thinking about technology. And in fairness, he does acknowledge that. Yes, yes. He, he, he literally is... says, and, and this is a, a such a true sentence, it is evident both from the facts on the ground and from the criticism of other experts that the conditions necessary for the singularity's emergence do not exist at the moment of this writing. So I'm yes. very glad that he just says that, because yeah, not no, everyone is, would have said that in 2008. He does not believe Kurzweil was always correct, but he thought Kurzweil was an intellectual cutting edge, which may have been true, unfortunately. Um, but this, this sort of... The elements of the singularity that I think stand out the most are that it is a science fictional myth of intense sort of gravitational power. It draws in science fictionality towards a single interpretation of the future. And I think, frankly, the fact that he doesn't see that this is the antithesis of the ludic form of yes! science fiction... Yes! Because that's the thing. The singularity is not a space of free play. It's like the most constricted possible set of constraints. And then it becomes... Like, the singularity as an idea, as a, as a science fictional idea, I think is particularly... You say it has this gravitational power, and I think it is... It is a... a, a it is a mind virus. It is a way of thinking about the future that shuts out possible human concepts, and it is immensely tempting. Yeah, I mean, it is a... When it's, the reason it was called the singularity by Vinji is because... Like a mathematical singularity or like a black hole, it is a point beyond which you cannot see. And so if that is an inevitable future element, that is the end of the future. The singularity is the point at which the, it goes from being the future to being the post-singularity future into which nothing can be seen. Now, most versions of the singularity idea do not actually accept that. They try to guess what happens after the singularity. They try to play the game in order to win the singularity and get a better world after it. But the singularity is, in Vinji's original point, the point beyond which science fiction can't speculate. It is science fiction's 
terminus. Yes. And the fact that science fiction gravitates towards a terminus in a certain sense argues for, and I'm definitely going into the wild speculation of theory zone here, it definitely argues for the idea that the freedom of science fiction is not its only impulse. The closure of science fiction is present and is dangerous, is powerful within that space. Even taking Chicharrone's idea of ludic science fiction entirely as, yes, we're going to accept that's what science fiction is for the moment, the singularity represents that ludism collapsing in on itself into a black hole. And, I mean, ultimately... That doesn't have to, like, something he also says at the very end of this chapter is, maybe we won't have science fiction forever. Yeah. Maybe there will be other things, like, uh, fictional genres have come and gone yes. in the past. I, he has the line that, you know, he says, um, you know, and he does, again, he is, as a thinker, skeptical of the real world singularity. He is interested in it as an extreme of science fiction. He does say... We probably won't achieve fast and light drives, time travel, wormhole subways, artificial immortality, or true techno-utopias as long as literature and spectacle exist. These will always be science fictional ideas, and as long as audiences are interested in them, there will be SF. But it is also possible that the genre will cease to be interesting simply because it will not satisfy collective needs, shape collective dreams, and stimulate collective desires. So the idea that science fiction can fail to answer to something and therefore become a quaint historical genre in the same way that we look at other genres now. And I think, you know, that is really clear-eyed of him because he spent Mm -hmm. the whole book trying to demonstrate that science fiction responds in particular ways to our current moment, to our current needs. And so if he wants to make that, I would say, very, um, you know... That argument, which is very supportive of science fiction, which encourages us to view science fiction as useful, I think he then also does have to admit, as he does, that as material conditions, conditions change, as material conditions change, the narratives that respond to them will also change. So I appreciate that on his part. Yeah, no, I. As much as this conclusion, starting with this whole book has been moving towards the singularity, made me go, "Oh no!" It didn't actually end up being that bad. This this unscientific postscript is, in fact, some of the most sort of clear-eyed and thoughtful reaction to the, the feeling of intense plausibility that the singularity can create in science fiction readers. Chichere Rone has the, I think, incredible presence of mind to say, I am finding this really plausible, but I think that's because it's science fictional. Yes. And then goes on to turn that into a meditation on what can science fiction become, where might it go, will it be around. And the final line of the book is, uh, you know, um, our aversions and affections may turn away from the fascinations of machinic, ext- machinic ecstasy, addictions to substance, dispassion in totality, and make of SF a venerable, classic art of an archaic age. One lesson I have learned from SF is, don't bet the house on the leading edge. And I think that's a really good thoughtful ending. I just really wish the singularity hadn't been as much the defining through line of the seven beauties, because I think that the singularity is, I mean, first of all, it is metastasized into a political ideology that really has weird effects. And secondly, it's kind of fallen out of favor in actual written science fiction, as it's made the jump into given world rhetoric. It's not really the case that science fiction likes to write about singularities that often anymore. Yeah. No, that's true. You know, and okay. I'm sure there are counterexamples to that, but I think that it's not... 
Werner Vinge famously could not see past the singularity at one point. I don't think that problem's bedeviling science fiction authors anymore. No. Okay, we have one last silly little thing that I want to do. Yep, yep. Which is, I asked Ben before we recorded this to rank the beauties. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And did you rank them as well? I did. And I realized after I did this that I had, uh, I ended up ranking them in two different ways. So (laughs) we can ask you what, I can ask what, which version you felt closer to. I ranked them in terms of how I feel about the chapters, and I also ranked them in terms of how I feel about the actual, like... The thing described? Like, yes. Like, so the difference between which is your favorite chapter and which is your favorite beauty. Exactly. That's fair. I did favorite chapter. Okay. My favorite beauty list would be somewhat different. That's fine. Let's let's go through the favorite chapter list then. Um, why don't we start from the bottom of the list? Well, my seventh, I think it's your seventh too... It's the technology ad. No, actually, I said the Novum because I found the the muddling of uh, the muddling of the way the Novum was presented meant that a term that could have been extremely useful throughout the rest of the book was somewhat uh, reduced. Mm. And so, as you know, again, as kind of a Suvinian, I felt that the handling of the Novum, not just because it was not Suvin's handling, but because it felt like it didn't break away enough from Suvin to be used differently. So he uses it mostly as Novum, the way Suvin would throughout the book. As okay, a... we can't explain our so, reasoning. Okay, okay, but the point is, it had an effect on the rest of the book that I think that uh, made it a bit weaker. Gotcha, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, well, my number six was Fictive Novums. And my number six was the Technology Ad. There so we go. So we're both... Those are both our least favorite chapters. Gotcha. Uh, number five, I had fictive neology. I had imaginary science, and I will say everything from five up is it was hard to choose. Yeah. But imaginary science. And my number four is imaginary science. My number four was the technological sublime. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Um. What was your three? My three was future history. My three was neology. Fictive. Fictive yeah, neology. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, see, that's a lot higher than I had fictive neology. Which... Neology, not neology, but neology, yes. My, I quite like it because I think as a chapter, it's really well constructed. It puts forward its cases. It puts forward its uh, suggestions very well. It's very self-contained. As a first chapter, it actually does a really good job. Yeah, that's totally fair. I think I was thinking a little bit more in terms of, like, how much do I want to use this idea? Mm, yeah, yeah, no, um, that's fair. And I think I'm less interested in his fictive mm-hmm, neology, mm-hmm. but... Uh, but I don't think you're wrong about the structure of the chapter. All right, number three, or wait, we just did number, number two. Three. Yeah, number two, I had the science fictional grotesque. I also had the science fictional grotesque. It's a good chapter. It's a good chapter. And then uh, for my number one, I actually had the science fictional sublime. I really liked that chapter. No, I did really. Look, like I said, it getting pushed down further was not because it was a bad chapter. My top one was future history. Uh, I think I said while we were reviewing it that. I really liked that chapter. Um, I thought the ways... It, first of all, the thing that I really like about that chapter in terms of reading the book is that it does make the ludic element explicit. And then imaginary science would be higher, but it was just after future history, so it makes it even more explicit. But basically, the thing about free play, the idea of science fiction always shows you multiple futures, this is actually something I've like thought about and wanted to think about further, and it's been done already and very well, so I don't actually... I can just draw on this for things I want to discuss rather than having to do all that work myself. So I find the future history section extremely useful. Also mention the book of the new sun. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I think there was something where I highlighted it and I was like, oh, this is Ben's, like, this is useful to Ben's theory. But uh, I think it was in a different chapter. Yeah, no, that's entirely plausible. But yeah, no, and I will say, from imaginary science on up for me, so the, the top five are all really good. Five out of seven is not bad. It's really not. Yeah. I, I honestly, let's make that our final statement on this book. <laughs> Five out of seven is really not bad at all. No, this is, I, I strongly recommend the book, especially if you want this kind of overview of different theories and approaches to science fiction studies. Uh, uh, Chichere Rone, in the introduction, states that it was intended for a pedagogical purpose, that like the, the purpose of the book is, was for teaching science fiction, and I think it excels at that. Like, if you put this book in front of, let's say, upper-level undergraduates or even graduate students and just like, here's an introduction to science fiction studies, you're not going to... I think they're going to get a wide variety of things, even if I think the anti-Suvinian line is a little bit strong here. Honestly, that's kind of fair, because Suvin has been a dominant mode of thought in science fiction studies. You're likely to end up Suvinian if you don't pick a lane. All right, Ben, I was trying to send subtle hints. We are 50 minutes over when we said we would finish recording. We must stop. Okay. (laughs) Goodbye, everyone. See you.